This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. so glad these midterm elections are finally over, uh, not only because it gives the people that won these elections an opportunity to focus on governing for a few minutes instead of campaigning, but it gives us the opportunity to talk about some subjects other than electoral politics, because believe it or not, there are a number of other subjects out there. I am a fan of motion pictures. I wouldn't call myself a film buff because that implies a level of expertise and a level of knowledge that I don't feel like I have. I also don't get to watch films that often because my schedule is so limited. If I'm lucky, I'll get to do maybe one a week. So I am into movies. I'm also into the Academy Awards. And we've talked about this before. Primarily because the Academy Awards, like the Super Bowl, like the Emmys, like the World Series, like a number of other broadcasts that are live on television, is something so special. There's something so special about being able to watch something live. And you watch all these events hoping that something unscripted is going to happen. You know, the Will Smith slap. Obviously, people might uh, not think it's appropriate for Will Smith to slap a comedian for making a joke. I certainly didn't. But um, that's the kind of unpredictable thing you watch these live broadcasts for. The uh, instance at the Academy Awards when Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway announced the wrong film as the winner of the Best Picture nominee. They said it was... um, Moonlight, and then it was actually, or they said it was La La Land, and it was actually Moonlight. Stuff like that. Well, so I'm something of a student of the Academy Awards. And we've seen over the last few years the ratings for the Academy Award broadcasts shrink. They've gone down and down and down. In 2022, around 15.3 million people watched the Academy Awards ceremony. Now, do you know, I mean, that sounds like a lot of people, 15.3 million. The last time the ceremony drew a U.S. audience of more than 40 million was back in 2014. The number of Academy Award viewers is shrinking year after year. And there are a number of factors for this. Uh, Fewer people have television. That's one. Fewer people are seeing the movies. Number two. I think some of it has to do with how these broadcasts are produced. I think to some extent they're just less interesting. 
So the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences know that there's a crisis here. And I would, or at least I thought they did, because they see the same numbers that I do. And eventually no one's going to be watching. So I was hoping that uh, for the upcoming telecast of the Academy Awards, we would see something really unique, really creative, really out of the box, something special. You know what I thought would have been great, actually? And obviously I'm biased because I'm a fan of the three performers that I'm going to mention. But the struggle is this for Hollywood and for the producers of these broadcasts. The struggle is this. How do you appeal to the people that watch television, namely older folks, and at the same time also appeal to younger folks? How do you appeal to folks that um, watch the kind of product that Hollywood puts out these days, which I would guess tends to be left-leaning, but also um, the kind of folks that you want to tune in because obviously conservatives and people that are, don't like wokeness, they watch television also. And the, the Oscars really are at an inflection point. Shrinking movie stars, boring broadcasts, sinking ratings, not to mention battles over their controversial new museum, a new quota system that people are very worked up about. My solution, for starters, you know what I would have done? Have three hosts of the Academy Awards, all hosting together. Those three hosts, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez is popular with younger folks. Steve Martin is popular with older folks. Martin Short is just brilliant as an entertainer. And I think that would have been something that would have attracted younger viewers and older viewers. But unfortunately, the Academy has announced that they are returning to the same tired old script, which I think has been contributing to their dwindling ratings. They announced a couple of days ago that Jimmy Kimmel will be returning to host the Academy Awards for a third time. He hosted the ceremony in 2017 and 2018, and uh, he did an okay job, I would say. He was mediocre. The jokes were okay. I mean, uh, this is kind of what you heard if you tuned into the 2017 broadcast. About a week before the show, the producers asked me if I wanted to do uh, some comedy with the accountants. And I said, no, I don't want to do comedy with the accountants. So then the accountants went ahead and did comedy on their own. So, you know, whatever. As you could see, it's certainly not worth the buildup there. I thought the jokes were okay. And he put out a statement, Jimmy Kimmel did, saying being invited to host the Oscars for a third time is either a great honor or a trap. Either way, I am grateful to the Academy for asking me so quickly after everyone good said no. So he's being sort of self-deprecating. I get it. Um, but it was him who was hosting the last time they had that mix-up when they went for when they had that mix-up between La La Land and Moonlight. So the next ceremony, a lot of people are going to be tuning in initially because it's going to be the first one after that famous controversy with Will Smith slapping. Chris Rock, Um, you had Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall all hosting that show. 
And it was announced in September that Glenn Weiss and Ricky Kirshner of White Cherry Entertainment had been named executive producers for the upcoming broadcast. It's going to be in March. I don't know much about uh, Glenn Weiss or Ricky Kirshner, but I have to tell you, if this is the direction they're going, I think uh, I'm underwhelmed. I'm underwhelmed. If you were producing the Academy Awards, what would you do? Beyond just the host, what would you do differently to get people to watch? Understanding you're, you're dealing with the cards that you're dealt, right? You're dealing with the movies as they are. You don't get to pick which films get nominated. They have this new quota system, which I don't even fully understand. There's all these controversies. Given the hand that you're dealt, that you don't get to pick the nominees, what would you do as the producer of this broadcast? Who would you have host? Who would you have be the the entertainers? Uh, who would you have sing? Obviously, I'm sure the singers depend largely on what movies are nominated because they usually try to get the people that sing the uh, best nominated songs. What kind of special stuff would you do? What would you do that's different, that's creative? Because I think Hollywood needs all the help that they can get. And I don't want to say anything about Jimmy Kimmel because I don't like to bash anybody that uh, that does this because I know how difficult this is to do. And look, Jimmy Kimmel's trying to make a living. He's trying to build an audience. And I've heard him on interviews with Howard Stern and others. And I appreciate the fact that he was an old school radio guy. And he seems to have a decent set of humor. I'd say his humor has never really been my cup of tea. Some of the things that he's done over the years I have found funny, like the running joke about interviewing Matt Damon at the end of the show. I think uh, that's kind of funny. And then that uh, that whole thing that he did with his ex-girlfriend, Sarah Silverman, the video about her sleeping with uh, Matt Damon, I thought that was very funny. But um, I don't know when it happened. But at some point over the last seven years or so, Jimmy Kimmel started to take himself way too seriously. And I think there were a variety of factors. I think part of it was him becoming more health conscious because he used to be kind of a uh, chubby guy that uh, seemed like um, he had the, the typical guy that you'd run into at the at a bar. He that now is super thin, super health conscious, super concerned about his weight. And I'm sure a lot of that is a product of being a father, right? So I'm not begrudging him for that. But I think it led to him taking himself much more seriously than people that are supposed to tell jokes and entertain others are supposed to. It's just my theory. The other thing is, I know he had a health scare with his uh, with his son, or his, I don't know if it's son or daughter, but with his baby, and that, I, I think, made him into a an occasional political commentator. And then lastly, I think the same thing happened to him that happened to Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert, which is the Trump presidency. For some reason, when Donald Trump started running for president and then when he got elected... These folks abandoned the prospect of telling jokes. Now, Johnny Carson, I think we have a pretty good idea of what his politics were. Johnny Carson was great because he told jokes about everybody. He would make fun of Reagan. He would make fun of Carter. He would make fun of everybody. Jay Leno, uh, obviously I wouldn't put him in, in Johnny Carson's category, but as a monologuist, there was nobody better than Jay Leno. And Jay Leno made fun of everybody. Made fun of Al Gore, made fun of George Bush. Um, and I think that's what has been lost in the Trump era. We now have partisan comedy. And I think nowhere was that more on display than Jimmy Kimmel's appearance on the Naked Lunch podcast, where I, I couldn't even believe that somebody would admit to this. 
and you might have seen this article. It was widely reported. Jimmy Kimmel actually said he threatened to quit his late night show if he was barred from attacking Donald Trump, even though his endless barbs cost him at least half his audience. Now, think about what I just said. The guy chased away his audience because he refused to stop attacking Donald Trump. Now, think about that. That's nuts. When you do this on radio and television, you have two jobs. One, get listeners or viewers, and two, get advertisers. And usually one leads to the other. Sometimes you can have one without the other, but it's much easier to get one with the other. And the guy was so determined to Trump bash that he was willing to lose half his audience. Here he is on the Naked Lunch podcast. I just said, I said, listen, I get it. I mean, I, I don't disagree. I mean, you're right. I have lost half of the, my fan, maybe more than than that. I mean, when I, you know, 10 years ago, uh, among like Republicans, I was the most popular talk show host. You know, uh-huh. I mean, you know, was, at least according to the research that they did. But uh-huh. um and I get it if that's what they want to do. I just said, listen, if that's if that's what you want to do, I understand, and I don't begrudge you for it, but I'm not going to do that. So, you know, if you want somebody else to host the show, then that's fine. That's okay with me. That's insane. That's insane. You know, if any, if management said to me that, uh, you know, you're, you've chased away half your audience because of your obsession with talking about pens... You know what I'd do? I'd stop talking about pens. <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, and I, again, I'm not. Um, I don't care that he he wants to attack Donald Trump. This is America. People should make fun of whoever they want to make fun of. But what I think this is, what I think this is illustrative of, is my broader point about Jimmy Kimmel taking himself too seriously. I think when you're willing to sacrifice one of the two things that you need in this case, an audience, in order to stay on television, you're, you've are you stayed too long at the party. And I, I'm not here advocating for term limits for talk show hosts, but I think this would be a good example of why maybe there should be term limits for talk show hosts. I think it's nuts what he did here. And I don't think this is the solution to the Academy Awards problem. 800-848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. I mean, think about that. Issuing an ultimatum. You better let me talk about Trump or I, or or get someone else. Well, excuse me. If I were a- ABC, the network, the TV network, I would say, okay, yeah. We're actually going to find someone that wants to be funny to everybody and try and get as many viewers as possible. What's Jay Leno doing? Oh, okay. I don't think that you bet your life... Uh, show has really taken off the way he envisioned. We'll bring him back. He'll tell jokes that everyone wants to hear. To me, that was crazy. The other part of it is, and by the way, let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, This hour, we're going to talk with J.C. Cole. J.C. Cole is a fascinating guy. Some of you may have read about him. There's a lot of concerns about the supply chain. There's a lot of concerns about the electric grid. And J.C. Cole is a real estate developer, an engineer, a farmer, and the former president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia. And there's this whole class of people that are prepping. They're prepping for disaster. 
And we're going to talk about it with J.C. Cole, and he'll tell you why maybe some people are concerned. So that's interesting. And then uh, next hour, we're going to talk with Claire Nader about the addiction that young people have to their television screens. Now, uh, going back to the and if you want to comment on what the Academy Awards could do differently, please do so. 800-848-9222. But uh, if you don't, then don't. Going back to the broader problem. I think part of the problem is humor in America today. A caller referenced this the other day. You remember the film Airplane? Now, the film Airplane is great. It's one of my favorite comedies of all time. Leslie Nielsen, and uh, there's cameos by people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Lloyd Bridges is great in it. It's wonderful. And it's really the first one of those films. And there's so many terrific aspects of it. I mean, it's a wonderful, holistic story, but it's also a great sketch comedy. I mean, you remember the scene where a woman on the airplane speaks jive and she's able to interpret? Can I get you something? Some more folk butter laying into the bone, jack me up. Tight me. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Cuddy say can't hang. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Say, cut me some slack. Don't want to help, chump. Don't get the help. Say, can't hang. Say, seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in him. Now, uh, part of what's missing there is the subtitles, which obviously we can't give you on radio, but it is, um, it is, it's pretty funny to see what they're saying versus what they're saying. And now, David Zucker, who was not only the director of Airplane and Airplane 2, the sequel, but the Naked Gun trilogy, the scary movie franchise. He is saying that uh, you can't do that kind of comedy today. I mean, imagine you couldn't, according to David Zucker, you couldn't feature a film that has jokes like this. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. I want you to sit down. Thank you. No, thank you. I take it back. Like my man. And so you have uh, basically making fun of culture with the jive talking scene. You have making fun of um, uh, sex, basically, and sex with black people uh, with the children in the coffee scene. But what about some just good old fashioned jokes about pedophilia? Joey, we have something here for our special visitors. Would you like to have it? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Sure. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. You ever seen a grown man naked? And now, according to David Zucker, you can't do that anymore. You can't make jokes about uh, things like race. You can't make jokes that are offensive uh, to different cultures. You can't make jokes about pedophilia or seeing grown men naked. What's this world coming to? He was on the uh, Prager. He was on the Prager U podcast talking about essentially how wokeness has ruined comedy. My current writing partner Pat Proft and I 
uh, you know, wrote a, a parody on James Bond at Mission Impossible, one female executive said, well, you know, this joke is getting pretty risque here, you know, and it was a, just a very mild joke about uh, the, the, the lead female character uh, because she had, uh, you know, come up through the police department and through the FBI, said she needed a breast reduction be- to fit a- into the Kevlar vest. It was pure oatmeal, so mild. Not not one of our funniest things, but this was like too much. And I thought, gee, if this was the criteria for it, we're in big trouble. You know, they're 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 destroying comedy because of nine percent of the people who don't have a sense of humor. When we would do screenings of Airplane, we get the question, could you do Airplane today? And the first thing I could think of was, sure, just without the jokes. <laughs> um, now, think of what he's saying there. This reveals a much larger cultural truth. Punchlines are now on the endangered species list. And I think he's right. That uh, Now, I do think you see some humor that is just so towards sexual humor, um, in, incessant use of the N-word, gross-out comedy that you wouldn't have seen years ago. But I think in terms of offensive humor, I think he's right that they are, as he said, destroying comedy because of 9% of the people who don't have a sense of humor. And if you think about it, that's what's happened to these Academy Award telecasts. And the Oscar and the Emmys telecast. You know the the um, Emmys, and I think maybe even the Golden Globes. But I know the Emmys. They had Ricky Gervais host several times. He was terrific. He was brilliant. And you know why he was brilliant? He made fun of everybody. He made fun of everybody in the room. Now think of what that would do if you did that at the Oscars to have everybody be made fun of. Chris Rock was very very gentle in terms of making fun of Jada Pinkett Smith's. Hairstyle. What happened? He got smacked. I think part of it is that these 9% are now exercising a veto over the humor that the masses would like to see. So uh, that's my kind of twofold question is if you were producing the Oscars, what would you do? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And two... Do you, one, agree with David Zucker that you couldn't make a film like Airplane Today? And that same mentality, that offensiveness, keeping certain jokes from ever seeing the light of day, that that's part of what has contributed to the dwindling entertainment value of some of these telecasts. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Frank, it's been a while. I just want to say the show is just awesome. Thank you. And uh, you're welcome. And um, as far as the Academy Awards, um, I'd love to see Ricky Gervais, uh, maybe Dave Chappelle, or maybe even Louis C.K. have his career resurrected a bit. And, um, you know, maybe you could have a couple of huge security guards standing on stage if any of those three uh, were hosting just to protect them. Uh, in case somebody wants to rush to rush the stage, and uh, I think they would um, they would have uh, no holes barred, and everybody would be a little edgy, and I think it would be quite entertaining. You know, uh, isn't that a shame? And thank you, Mike. Isn't that a shame that you actually need to talk about the security measures that would need to be in place? 
to tell jokes. Isn't that a shame? You know, it's funny. Uh, I know someone in the LAPD, and uh, they worked at the Oscars that night of the uh, Chris Rock incident. And they said that uh, Chris Rock was kind of kind of a jerk to the cops that day. Kind of, I don't want to get into detail, but they said he was kind of a jerk. And um, th- a lot of the cops weren't that upset <laughs> when when he got uh, when he ended up getting smacked by Will Smith. So I thought that was interesting. Hey, um, something that a lot of people are worried about is what may be coming to our supply chain, what may be coming to our electric grid. We've discussed the issue of electromagnetic pulse before. What if the you know what really hits the fan? See, if we were still in an era where it was okay to do airplane jokes, we could actually have that sound effect of the you-know-what hitting the fan. But whatever, this is the era we're living in. There are a whole lot of people that are prepping for the unthinkable and what some are saying is the the inevitable. We're going to get into this with J.C. Cole in just a minute. J.C. Cole is a fascinating guy. He's been looking at these issues for a long time. He's been studying these issues for a long time and uh, has got a lot of international perspectives in terms of what's happened. And uh, I'm going to try and find some notes to be optimistic when we speak, but I've read some of what he's written, and it's getting tougher and tougher to stay optimistic. We'll get into it in a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm Frank Morano. Well, the one thing that seems to unite people across the political spectrum, left, right, center, non-political, is there's a lot to be concerned about. Uh, Some people are concerned about climate change and the weird weather that it might produce. Some people are concerned about what might happen if there's a nuclear war with Russia. Some people are concerned about the the threat of an EMP attack. Some people are concerned about a naturally occurring electromagnetic pulse, which might knock out the electric grid. And some people are concerned that the supply chain problems we may see in the future may make what we've seen recently look like tiddlywigs. A guy that has studied this, looked at it, and is preparing for the worst is J.C. Cole. He's a real estate developer, an engineer, a farmer, and the former president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia. J.C., it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I look forward to it. How did uh, you end up working in Latvia, and what was life uh, like living and working out there? Well, that was fascinating. I was a real estate developer here in New Jersey, and quite honestly, I I got bored um, with my project, and I said, uh, I finished it up, and I said, okay, I can go anywhere in the world I want where I want to go. And it ended up 
uh, in Latvia, of which I said, what's what's Latvia? Um, <laughs> so so uh, this was uh, 1992. The Soviet Union had uh, collapsed in November of 91, and I had uh, contacts and, and wanted to go to the former Soviet Union, of which I knew very, very little about. And uh, ended up in this tiny little um, country uh, of, of Latvia, about the size of West Virginia, um, but only with two, two and a half million people. Um, so, so I was looking for, for adventure, and, and I found it, and I found it in spades, you might say. Um, <laughs> you know, be careful what you ask for, because you might get it. So how long were were how long were you there for, and what was if you, if you're not going to chronicle all the adventures, give us one that you experienced. Um, well, I was there for 18 years, so I moved there in August of uh, uh, 1992, and then I stayed there till about uh, uh, 2010. Um, well, in, in different adventures, um, you know, my parents were very conservative and worried since uh, Nixon took us off the um, uh, the gold standard. And I actually went through uh, five different banking crashes wow. um, and, and, and physic, physically experienced them. And uh, believe me, uh, you really do change your underwear when that happens. <laughs> I, I, can, I can imagine. I can imagine. All right. Um, let's talk about what's going on in this country. There has been a great deal of concern about supply chain issues. Supply chain issues have been blamed for everything from inflation to the uh, shortage of coins when you need change to uh, people having to wait extra time when they order Christmas gifts. Do you see these uh, supply chain issues getting better, worse or staying about the same? Uh, I see them uh, getting worse. Um, when I, I had actually experienced the collapse of the Soviet supply chain. So, you know, the, uh, not many people really understand what the Soviet Union was, but it's like it was like four times the size, physical size of the United States with about the, um, the same amount of people as we had, uh, 300 million. And so their supply chain collapsed. And it didn't matter if you had money um, because I was in dollars. Um, um, but if there's no gasoline, you can't get the gasoline. You can't buy it. It's just not there. Um, so if you actually compared the Soviet Union um, before it collapsed to the United States in its present uh, situation, there are many similarities. And and that's when I came back and I said, oh, my goodness. I looked at it and I said, uh, our supply chain is pos- positioned to collapse. And of course, you know, this was, uh, I came back about 10 years ago and, um, and uh, I, you know, I uh, got laughed at by my close friends. Ah, no, this is America. This can never happen until COVID. And COVID was a wake up sign for us. Why were you convinced pre COVID that the supply chain collapse was inevitable? It, it it came down to engineering, math, and and and, and physics. Um, you just looked at the um, you, you uh, uh, reverse engineer it and say, okay, a better question is, what can cause the collapse of the supply chain? Uh, and then you looked at those items, and you've mentioned a, a couple of them. One is an EMP, um, and uh, that will 
that will drop the supply chain. And because our supply chain is so large and so so let's say um, specific, um, and it's also you know it's just in time. It 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 works like a Swiss clock in many ways. But if it collapses, right? Um, the majority of the United States do not have food mm. delivered, right? And and specifically of of concern is New York. Um, that um, you know they they say that we only have like three days of food in in a food store, but but if you just look at it, if if uh, the um, if the trucks stop running, right, then New York will run out of food in a week. Uh, and so, so you can get through for another week, but at the same time, if the, the supply chain stops for the country, you're not going to get help from mm-hmm. other areas. Um, like when nine 11 happened, you got help from all over the nation. Well, what if the whole nation is in that problem? You're not going to get help. Uh, and if you look, let's see if I'm, if my numbers are correct, uh, New York takes in about 400 million tons of cargo a year, 90% by truck. What happens when that stops? Well, what might cause a uh, a stoppage of cargo that's brought in by truck, especially items that we can't live without, namely food? Uh, food and medicine, uh, mm-hmm. correct. Um, well, well, the... the um, um, uh, what I ended up doing was I did a SWOT analysis, which was strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats on the United States. Uh, you know, it's a business um, uh, look at it, and almost nobody's done that. I haven't found anybody who did it on the United. No, neither States. had I. Neither had I. Yeah, and you know, and all of a sudden you you realize you go, wait a minute, there, there is this thing called a, a you know, let's say a, a CME, a, a coronal mass ejection uh, from the sun. We know this; it's proven. Our experts are saying it, and that we know it's overdue. And that, um, but we don't know when it will happen. It could happen in a day, which it won't, I'm pretty sure. But it could happen in a year, or it could happen in 10 years, or maybe even 30 years. But if it does happen with the positioning that our electric grid is in, it totally destroys our electric grid. And then everything stops. Now, and go ahead. Yes. No, and, and we'll, we'll, you know, um, you know, I grew up in the New Jersey area, and so when I grew up, uh, the uh, you know the dairy was five miles away. You know, you had the local butcher, you had local food. Well, now because of economics of scale and a very uh, sophisticated delivery system, we no longer grow enough food locally to feed us. So if the system breaks. You know, uh, Frank, we gotta we gotta drive to like Iowa to get our cereal. We gotta drive to California to get our our lunch, uh, you know, uh, salads, and we gotta drive to like Nebraska to get our our beef for dinner. Um, it's no longer local. Mm. Now, um, talk to me about the threats to the electric grid. Now, you just described a theoretical electric grid disruption that might be. Um, naturally occurring. But there's also a very real concern about the possibility of a targeted EMP attack, isn't there? Correct. Correct. Um, So there are a couple of ways to have an EMP, and that's, you had mentioned, an electronic magnetic pulse. It's just basically a big wave of 
of magnetism, which when it hits our grid, turns into electricity and overloads our transformers. And we no longer make the big transformers um, in the country anymore. Um, in our infinite wisdom, we allowed them to be sourced, you know, uh, outside of the country. So, so um, you can get you can get um, um, uh, an EMP from the sun. Uh, uh, you can also get one now. Our technologies are so advanced that if you um, if somebody fires off a high level uh, atmosphere nuclear bomb, it creates an EMP, and uh, therefore again um, overloads the electric grid and shuts it down. And so that's one of them is a is a nuclear exchange. And now that doesn't mean we are physically damaged by the nuclear blast. We are electronically damaged by it. Uh, so that, that that's a, a a clear and present threat. Um, another way is what's known as Tesla technology, which we know that the different big uh, uh, countries uh, like um, the United States, Russia, and China have um, invented or reinvented that they are able to do a local EMP uh, using just technology, uh, machinery. So so somebody can fly in there and just shut off New York if they wanted to. Um, and, and this has been demonstrated on some of our ships. If you look at, the, I think it's the, the USS Donald uh, Cook was turned off in the middle of the Black Sea. Um, and uh, of course, most of the Americans don't know this information. So we have the uh, technology to do it. And of course, there's another way uh, to um, um, uh, damage the grid. Is that just physical? And this, this happened where uh, there are nine key transformers that run the grid uh, in America. and that um, if you simply shoot holes in the um, the uh, cooling uh, tanks, which is it's a, an oil, uh, it drains out. They overheat. It's like shooting you know holes in your radio or your car. It overheats and mm -hmm. and and burns out the engine. Well, we know this happened. Um, uh, there was uh, an attack. In California in uh, uh, 2013, we don't know who did it, but they shut down. Uh, they shut down a uh, transformer station. Wow. Um, do you have a, a theory as to whether that was a random actor or uh, something a little bit more elaborate, maybe uh, a government-sponsored entity of some sort? Well, um, from the information that we're allowed to the public. Um, the FBI has not figured it out who actually did it, but it wasn't a random act. Hmm. It was somebody very skilled. They knew exactly what they were doing, uh, and uh, it part of it's documented. Um, they they uh, they came up to it's in Medcalf, uh, California, uh, and they came up. They uh, um, cut the fiber optic lines for telecommunications so that uh, the um, technician couldn't notify um, the police. And then they proceeded to pump holes into uh, uh, like 17 of the cooling tower um, 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 holding tanks. And then they just disappeared. And they, they could have taken down the whole 
transformer station, but they stopped and they went away. So it's almost like somebody gave us a warning. Um, and if they did, uh, Silicon Valley would have been out of power for like six months. Uh, I first learned about you in the New York Post, and the headline of that uh, piece that you mentioned in was Billionaire Bunkers, How the World's Wealthiest Are Paying to Escape Reality. And the, um, the, the first sentence in the article was, When Civilization Collapses, J.C. Cole Will Be Ready. And it talks about your efforts founding something called Safe Haven Farms, which is a maximum security compound that will enable some people to ride out the next pandemic or the next climate change disaster, whatever whatever it is. Explain to folks exactly what you're doing with Safe Haven Farms. I will, but I, I just want to make a little bit of a joke. I was very happy, you know, or stunned to see I was lead off batter for New York on the apocalypse. <laughs> I I I kind of choked on that one. I, I can thought imagine. I could, yeah. yes. But um, but what 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 happens is for, for, you got to start someplace, okay? So I was a first responder um, back many years ago before I went to Latvia. I was a uh, senior level ski patrol, and um, the whole thing about first responders is to make sure you're safe and in a strong position so that you can help. And so I came back. I said, listen, my opinion is that this. Uh, has a very high probability of happening that are um, that something happens there. I came up with like 13 different events that could um, shut down the supply chain. So I I positioned it and I said, how do I uh, create a position of strength where I can help when that happens? And uh, we actually have a family farm. And I started to say, okay, how can I prepare this so it's strong and basically sustainable and on its own power system uh, in an emergency? And then I realized how expensive it can get and uh, decided that, um, you know, I'll make it a business case, um, a, a business plan. And And then you said, well, if the system breaks, it's almost like if we're on a big ship and um, you look around, and you go, wait a minute, there aren't any lifeboats. Well, let's build a lifeboat. So that's the first thing. And then the second is, well, who goes in the lifeboat um, with me um, during this period of chaos? And I said, well, well, m- most critical would be like a farmer. And then after that, um, uh, a mechanic and a machinist um, uh, because that keeps the farmer running. And then, of course, you need security because, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people who who will not have uh, supplies and want to take them. Um, And you go, well, what about a doctor? And I said, well, I'm not very interested in the guys who just give out prescriptions. How about a a trauma doctor like an ER doctor and a dentist? And so I, I sat there and I said, I want these skill sets in this. Um, um, let's say, safe haven, so that as soon as we get through the period of chaos, we can start rebuilding. Hmm. And uh, that got expensive. And so I said, um, okay, well, the only other way to to do this is find wealthy people who can come into the lifeboat also and pay for it all. Um, And so that was what the safe haven is. How many people are uh, participating so far? Well, well, very, very few. Um, what, what happens is... Uh, well, b- I, I, ballpark. Is that four or is that 40? 
Well, on the on the skill set, I've got um, I've got about five mm-hmm. um, that say yes, this makes sense. You know, we're we're there. Um, but as far as investing, that's really tough because you have to. It's not a it's not a small investment. You have to deal with multimillionaires, um, and they have a very low profile. Um, it's hard to get in front of them and say, hey, listen, I have a solution. Right. You're in New York. Um, you know, if the system turns off uh, and you, you deal with experts, and so the experts say that if the system collapses, in general, you're only going to get three hours away. You know, these guys that are, are the billionaires that think they're going to get on a plane and, and make it to, like, New Zealand, um, you, they haven't looked at war very closely. You know, the, the odds of them getting sure. on a plane are, are almost zero. And um, the even website, if, by the way, if, it. if people are interested in learning more about it, that's safehavenfarmsanctuary.org, right? No, no. It's actually um, um, uh, uh, American Heritage Farms. American Heritage Farms. Got it. Thank you. Right. And, and right there, even in the title, this is our heritage. And so what I did was I created a business plan to bring what made us great as a country, our heritage. You know, and, and, you know, you think of that. When the pilgrims landed, the first thing they started to do was start planting food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so and, and what has happened is we've offshored so much that we're in danger, and we see it happening, sure. that, um, you know, if our machinery breaks, you know, we, we, um, we, these days we just pick up the phone and we you know and call and it's here the parts here in one day well that stops if the system if the right. supply chain breaks uh, jc i'm almost out of time and we've been talking to uh, jc cole if you want to learn more about this go to ahfarms.org that's ahfarms.org uh, two final questions i have to ask you one uh, let's say people are listening to this, but they can't afford to be part of this farm. What advice would you have for someone who doesn't have a lot of money? They're not a millionaire. They're not a billionaire. But they want to try to find out a way to ride out the forthcoming disaster. What advice would you give them? Well, the first thing I'd say, uh, go and, and buy two books. One book is uh, Dare to Prepare by Holly Dayo. And so you have to do a search on that. Uh, and the second one is When Technology Fails by Matt Stein. That will give you a good game plan, right? The, the, the second, especially for New Yorkers, you know, there are a bunch of people that are very concerned about this. There is a guy who has a YouTube channel called The Angry Prepper, and he's a New York um, fireman who – is I think I think he's in Queens, right? And so so he has he has a following there. So you've got somebody right there in the city who who can advise you. And then um, lastly, lastly, JC, there are going to be people listening to this. Obviously, you know how cynical talk radio listeners can be, especially in places like New York. There's going to be some people listening to this that say, well, you know, JC is trying to present a worst case scenario, get everybody concerned, get everybody amped up so that he can then benefit business wise for all these people that want to be uh, on the uh, on, you know, part of this this AH farm. What do you say to those folks? Um, I ignore them. <laughs> there you go. Hey, I, I wish uh, I wish I w- had the strength to do that with some of my critics. Hey, um, JC, this has been fascinating. Uh, let's talk again soon because I'm really interested in what you're doing. Anytime. 
Anytime. Thank you. Give me a heads up. J.C. Cole, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. So much time to sit and think about myself, and then there she was, like double cherry pie. Yet there she was, like disco superfly. I smell sex and candy. Marcy Playground, Sex and Candy. Uh, one of the better songs of the 1990s. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. L- so l- let me tell you um, what's in store for me today, okay? I really need you to come up with really impressive questions for tomorrow's edition of uh, Ask Frank Anything because I am in for an adventure today. So here's here's what's going on. I try to get into Manhattan by, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock most nights. I agreed to go to a party tonight in Manhattan. And uh, the people from the party, they're friends of mine. It's really, it's a business thing. I think there'll be a lot of people that I should be networking there. And there's a lot of people that have been very good to me at this thing. I agreed to go to a party tonight from 5 to 7 p.m. Now, for me to get anywhere, I'm barely awake at 5 to 7 p.m. For me to get anywhere at 5 p.m. is, I mean, it's insane. It's, it's, it takes all of my strength and all of my planning. Okay. Uh, additionally, I have been trying to get a haircut for a while. And you know how difficult it is for my barber to accommodate my schedule. So I said to this fellow, I said, Lou, can you give me something this week, the earliest possible time you have or the latest possible time? So he said, all right, I can give you Thursday morning at 9. And by the time I got back to him and said, fine, I'll take it, he said, oh, sorry, that's already been given away. I don't know what's going on at this barbershop. I hope it's a front for something because it's just ridiculous. So he offers me 9.30, which essentially means that I would come home, sleep for two hours, get up for my haircut, and then presumably go back to sleep. Here's the other rub. I got a text message reminder saying that I had a dentist appointment today at 4 o'clock. Uh-oh. 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 Now, obviously, if I have a dentist appointment at 4 o'clock, I can't be in Manhattan at 5. So I said, is there anything you could do earlier? And they said, all right, well, we can give you one. So this is my day-to-day. Going home, going to sleep for two hours, wake up, get a haircut, um, then go back to sleep, wake up, presumably spend some time with my son looking after him so my wife can you know, get some work done, go to the dentist, come into Manhattan for this party, ideally maybe take a nap, although I think I may end up um, having dinner with a friend of mine. So tomorrow's show is going to be an adventure. You know, you talk about all the disasters that we're preparing for through electromagnetic pulse or supply chain disruption. The disaster I'm preparing for is... Four separate sleep cycles. You know, it used to be I was concerned about getting bifurcated sleep. This is trifurcated at most. You know, this is going to be 
quite an adventure. So uh, I have ordered some toothpicks to uh, keep my eyes open tomorrow, but all the more reason why I'm going to need you to spend the next 23 hours thinking of creative questions for tomorrow. So bring your A-game tomorrow. That's all I'm asking. Hey, um, those of you that are holding, Richie, Steve, John, Stan, if you want to continue to hold, I'll get to you after the top of the hour. A lot of other interesting stuff we're going to get to. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There's a film on Netflix which I think nobody really seemed to like, but uh, seemed to like, but me. I enjoyed it. It's called Don't Look Up. Well, I am telling you to look up a great deal in the months of November and December because there is a ton of stuff happening in space, and it begins with meteors. Meteor showers are raining all sorts of clues down upon our solar system. Hundreds of years after meteor showers were first observed, these cosmic spectacles are still delivering scientific clues to researchers. Now, this is, to me, wild. Meteors bring information about their parent asteroids and comets, which carry evidence of the solar system's history and help scientists study the origins of the Earth itself and other planets. Understanding meteor showers, it also allows space agencies like NASA, NASA's equivalent in other countries, And companies, uh, private sector space uh, companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, to keep their spacecraft in orbit safe by knowing more about the environment that surrounds them. Rocks and dust can impact satellites at high speed, potentially damaging them or taking them out of service altogether. Now, November and December are banner months for these annual meteor showers. And scientists around the world are going to be keeping an eye on these shooting stars. The Torrid meteor shower is going on is is going on continuously, and the Leonid meteor shower is expected to peak mid month. Each of these meteor showers has all sorts of different characteristics. Bill Cook, who's an astronomer for NASA, told uh, Axios about the Torrid meteor shower. Torrids produce a lot of fireballs, not because they're fast, but because they're more pebble and baseball size, whereas the Leonids are fast, extremely fast, but they're specks of dust. Fireballs are defined as meteors that appear about as bright or brighter than Venus in the night sky. So I think this is uh, really cool. And um, you don't have to use radar systems or high-powered high-powered equipment, citizen scientists with their own backyard cameras are contributing a great deal to the field of studying these meteors. And these contributions can include information about the frequency and the timing of these meteors. You don't need to have a million-dollar lab in order to do your meteor observations. Sometimes you can just use your eye or spend a few hundred dollars and build your own cameras. So meteor showers happen when the Earth 
passes through trails of debris left behind by comets and asteroids. So unlike that film, look up. <laughs> look up. That's my message for the, especially the month of November and December. There's a new study, actually, in the Astrophysical Journal suggesting a 2014 fireball was actually an interstellar object. Scientists are also searching for other interstellar meteors, hoping to uncover more objects like this. Finding interstellar meteors would allow scientists to learn more about other solar systems and about the objects within them without sending a mission out to visit one. So I think this is uh, pretty interesting as far as I'm concerned. If you want to comment, you're certainly welcome to 800-848-9222. Um, that's 800-848-9222. Meteor shower science is a very small scientific field. And many meteor scientists are focused on uh, reanalyzing research that was done decades ago by applying new techniques to see what earlier researchers might have missed. But uh, I think this is really uh, quite interesting, I must say. Now, I know a lot of folks have been following what's happening with Artemis, the launch of Artemis 1 to the moon. That has been delayed to November 16th due to Tropical Storm Nicole. So uh, I think it was supposed to take place either today or tomorrow. It is not. It is going to take place on November 16th. At least that's when it's scheduled for. So hopefully I'm eager to get back to the moon as quickly as possible. I think there's still a lot uh, a lot to get to. And scientists, lastly on the space front, and then we'll get to your calls, 800-848-9222. There's four open lines if you want to comment. You can. Scientists have found the closest black hole to Earth yet. The black hole is located about 1,600 light years away, and it could help scientists learn more about the formation and the evolution of these objects, which not long ago people thought this was fiction. And scientists estimate there are 100 million black holes in the Milky Way alone that are 5 to 100 times more massive than the sun. Think about that. Now, this black hole, the one we're talking about, named Gaia BH1, is thought to be 10 times more massive than our sun. But Gaia BH1 is different from other black holes that feed off of their companion stars. Instead, this black hole and its star are quietly hanging out together in their part of space. Other black holes found of this size pull in matter from the stars that orbit them and emit these bright X-rays. But the team of researchers that's looking at this originally found the relatively nearby black hole in data from the Gaia spacecraft, that's how it got its name, by tracking the movements of its stellar companion. They then followed up with observations from the Gemini North Telescope in Hawaii, allowing scientists to confirm the system looks like it's composed of a black hole and a star. So it's not exactly clear how this whole system formed. The star that collapsed and gave rise to the black hole must have been about 20 times more massive than the sun, only living for a few more million a few million years, according to research, which is not a long time in cosmic terms. And as this large star died on its way to becoming a black hole, it should have expanded, enveloping its companion star pretty early on. But that didn't happen. So we don't exactly know why that's the case. Meanwhile, last week, 
Another team of researchers announced the detection of neutrinos sent out by a supermassive black hole shrouded in gas and dust at the center of a distant galaxy. So uh, there's a lot going on in space. There's black hole stuff going on. There's meteor stuff going on. And, by the way, I was very pleased to see all the people in the Facebook group, and you can join the Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters, sharing photos of the blood moon, that uh, reddish moon after the uh, lunar eclipse the other day. So that was kind of neat. And uh, solar panel trouble on... Um, There's a lot going on. So uh, if you want to contribute, you can call us or you can share any photos you might have. What I found really interesting is the remains of a dead star are on display in a new image taken by a telescope in Chile. And it's a web of gas and dust that was left behind when a huge star expanded and exploded as a supernova about 11,000 years ago. Uh, This is really interesting, and it's pretty beautiful. I'm going to put an image of it. I'm going to share an image of it on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash MoranoFan, and you could see it, because if you think about all the destruction that involves a star going supernova, on the one hand, it makes you kind of sad, but then you see something that looks like a magnificent piece of art like this, you know, it's pretty pretty neat. All right, 800-848-9222. If you want to see that picture, just go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Let me say hello to John in Freehold, who has been patiently holding. Hello, John. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Um, so uh, there are so many topics covered. Um, I'll just stick to uh, in recent news, too, since you were talking about this, did you know that they discovered um, uh, that you can transmit things through lasers, through light? Well, what sort of so, things? Well, like like any information, you want any data, any information you want to send, instead of doing it via computer or cell phone, you can transmit data through light itself. I hadn't like heard about light. that, actually. No. It's, it's actually brand, it's really brand new, and they just discovered that. That's a big thing to look into. And number two... Uh, they made, I forgot if it was a proton or a neutron or a photon, they made it go faster than the speed of light, which is also... That's pretty groundbreaking. Pretty breaking news. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, what we were talking about before, um, uh, can, I, can I talk about the movies? or? Be my guest, John. It's your dime. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. You can't make movies like you, the comedy movies like you used to back in the day, which is why I think like Austin Powers Four is going to be terrible, and they, you can't make scary movies like you were able to. I just don't understand who these people are that it offends. If it's such a small group, it's the same thing like uh, you know, like maybe uh, one or two percent of the population of America is um, either you know LGBTQ whatever. But if you look like in the shows and the news and everything, it's like more than half the country is like that. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, One of the shows that I thought was really groundbreaking was Family Guy uh, because they used to make fun of everybody. They used to make fun of every race, every uh, health condition, every medical condition, uh, every disability, every, you know, every situation. They had a pedophile character on the show. They made fun of gays. They made fun of transgenders. 
And I've noticed that even Family Guy, which was a show that would really push the envelope, last few years I've noticed them kind of dialing it back a little bit. And they've talked about this. I think they've even said they don't make gay jokes anymore. And look, I I have no interest in picking on gay people, but I do think it's interesting that they've decided apparently that a whole category of humor is now off limits. And I think that's a real shame. John, thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. By the way, let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited. We're going to talk with Claire Nader, Dr. Claire Nader in about uh, about 10, 15 minutes. She has a new book out. She's Ralph Nader's sister. She has a new book out about raising tweens. And the book is primarily written for tweens. So I'm looking forward to uh, that conversation very much. Uh, that's coming up. Uh, Igor is in Fairfield. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Hey, uh, real quick on the uh, the fellow there with the hideaway and all that sort of thing. You'll notice that he did not say that uh, radio talk show hosts were one of the coveted uh, people he'd saved. <laughs> well, you know, I think we probably are. Uh, we fall firmly in that category of un- non-essential personnel. Frank, next to food, that's probably the next most important thing, a radio talk show host. But um, on the Oscars, you know, I think it'd be rather in- un- improbable, and I think the cost would be way too high. But I think if you were able to get two charismatic stars at such a level that uh, people would want to watch it, and I'm talking about picking George Clooney and Brad Pitt buddies or George Clooney and Julia Roberts, I think people would tune in to see that banter back and forth. You couldn't have them do the insult jokes. You'd get a comic to do that, and they'd laugh along with it and kind of poke at him a little bit. The second thing – if there's any kind of audience involvement when people vote and, and possibly change the outcome, not the awards, but just the path of the show, that those are the only two things I could think of. All right. Well, that's not bad, Igor. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Devin in Yonkers. Hello, Devin. Hey, um, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to ask, like, you know, I, I hear your point earlier that you said, you know, the Republicans, you know, got some gains that were unexpected in New York. I, I totally respect that point. But are you really that surprised at, at our astonishment? I mean, I can't believe what happened last night, given the state, the, the horrid state our nation is in with the economy, with immigration, with food prices, gas prices. I mean, I'm shocked that this happened last night. And to me, the lesson that I took out of it is that they've done a really good job of making Republicans look like a bunch of white supremacist, racist, evil Voldemorts. And I don't know what else I can take from it. Yeah, I don't I mean, understand how this could have happened. Yeah, I, I don't agree, Devin. And thanks for the call. I, I think um, he's talking about the New York election results. I think the fact that Lee Zeldin, as the Republican nominee for governor, got 47 percent of the vote, I think it's astonishing. He, this is a pro-life Trump supporting Republican I didn't really want to get into politics today. I was kind of enjoying a uh, political free conversation. But and he did better than any Republican has done in decades running for governor. I I think it's 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 incredible. I think um, there's a lot of things the GOP can do. uh, But uh, I think he did really well. 
And I think that speaks not only to the kind of enthusiasm there is for Republicans, and that's one of the reasons one of the reasons they won so many seats. But I think it speaks to the poor job Kathy Hochul did, not only as governor but in the campaign. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Dave is in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Uh, I have I'm well. Thank you. Good. I have two points to make. I was listening to a morning radio show, one dial up. One station up. He was a gentleman they had on was a astronomer and a scientist, and he said that with black holes you would be able to time travel, and you would be able to go back in time, and maybe even go forward in time. Well, I mean, I've heard that that as well. You heard that as well. Yeah, but I didn't hear that. You know, that that interview, you know, I mean, so I don't know. Uh, But uh, I think it's pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, basically, also, uh, my second point that I wanted to make was that um, uh, aliens from other planets that do exist out there, they use the same uh, technology, so to speak, that we do in in the fact that they use math and physics but their math and physics is hundreds of thousands of years. They've figured out things that we haven't figured out yet that makes them travel from one universe to another. And, and what they do is they bridge the gap. They can't travel these far distances because they can't go uh, 10 times the speed of light. It'll still take them plenty of years to get here. Like, for example, uh, I think that uh, aliens from other planets are examining us, looking at us, and been watching us for years uh, from a distance, and they know what's going on on this planet. And they were aware of the atom bomb being dropped in 1945, uh, and it took them the to about a year and a half to get here from wherever star system they came from, which is part of what crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. Interesting. Wow. That is uh, an interesting theory, and that's one that I don't know that I've heard before. That's a good one, Dave. Fig- I just figured that one out. Yeah. I, I just kind of figured that one out because if we can put – the James Webb Telescope out there, it, at this period of time in, our, in, in, in the 21st century, and see out into the universe that we've never seen anything like we've seen before, and see these things, and see these black holes, and see all these stars and everything, if there's other life out there that's so much more advanced than us, how can how could they not possibly uh, no, agree. be spying on us? Agree, Dave. Uh, agree, Th- Dave. Thank you for the call. Uh, appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Claire Nader is coming up in a minute. I want to get uh, I want to get uh, at least to one or two more calls because uh, folks have been patiently holding, and then uh, we're going to talk to Claire Nader about uh, the future of of child rearing, essentially, and the present of child rearing. Steve is in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. Yes, um, with an airburst uh, electromagnetic pulse, 
there's very little that people on the ground can do. That would be the realm of the Air Force. But ground-based attacks by villains or terrorists, why have we not reached the intelligence to station divisions of the National Guard around each of our plants? Some years ago, there was a simulated test attack, and people broke into the Indian Point station north of New York City. Right. Had they been really intent on doing harm, they could have done it easily. There was no security whatsoever back then. And that's a nuclear plant. So why on earth have we, have our politicians not stationed divisions of the New York State National Guard, for example? They're just point number one. Um, I, I, I just think we're, we're kind of growing un, unhinged in all ways. Our, our rationality has gone at an all-time low. But, uh, by the way, when you were mentioning about the black holes, it is believed by we, – we've never seen a direct black hole. But it's believed that every pinwheel constellation, every pinwheel galaxy, of which there are tons, they're not the only variety of um, uh, or, uh, galaxies. But at the center, it's believed that there's a black hole that organizes all the stars and all the matter – uh, by its immense gravity, that it keeps all the different... For example, it looks a little like a flower with the petals. They're all attached to the nucleus of the flower, which is all those beautiful little geometric patterns. But the whole point is that seems to be a general blueprint in nature and mm -hmm. in physics. Mm -hmm. Out in space, where there's no atmosphere or, uh, to speak of, all of the star systems, all of the various equivalent solar systems, all revolve around our nucleus, we're not able to see it because we're looking in head-on from the edge of our Milky Way toward the nucleus. But it's in the Milky Way that we see is all the illuminated stars in the nuclear hub of our pinwheel galaxy. Our Milky Way is an ordinary garden variety pinwheel galaxy. Hey, Steve, I, I got a break uh, because we have uh, Claire Nader waiting in the wings. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. It's funny how your perspective changes as you go through different phases of life. For a number of years, I was determined that the only measure of success that really mattered was uh, professional life. Then for a number of years, I thought that success could best be measured in the kind of impact that you were having on your community. And then for a while, 
I thought your success could be measured by the people around you, the character of the folks around you, the joy that you bring to their lives and the uh, enlightenment that you get from them. Well, all of that changed a year ago. As of a year ago, my entire perspective was warped because my wife gave birth to our son, Carmine. And now the only thing I think about in the morning, in the afternoon, and uh, right before I go to bed is what kind of person my son is going to be. And that's why uh, whenever I come across some advice on how to raise, uh, how to raise a child into a functioning, productive member of society who's happy, content, smart, and is a well-balanced person, I run to that. And I was very eager to read Claire Nader's book, uh, not only because she's an incredibly well-respected social scientist who's an incredibly accomplished person herself, but because her book, You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and Intellect of Tweens, is one of the best guides to raising a really wonderful person that I've ever come across. Uh, Dr. Claire Nader, it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, why did you write this book? Uh, you have been writing and researching and studying a number of different things for literally decades. Why write this book? Why now? Well, because the corporate or commercial pressure is coming down on our children daily, some five to six to seven hours in front of the iPhone alone is relentless. And the corporate hucksters are radically bypassing parents and directly marketing to these youngsters such things as junk food, other harmful products, violent programming, and so on. And the Internet giants cunningly are tempting, then they're seducing, and then they're addicting these kids into the Internet virtual gulag, separating them from family, community, nature, in short, from the realities they must learn to face as they grow older. It's accurate to say, I think, that these companies are abducting these children, commercializing their private information for huge profits. Can you imagine that? Oh, and it unfortunately. never stops. Unfortunately, you don't have to imagine it because it's uh, all too evident on a daily basis. I really enjoyed the documentary that uh, you're featured in, but that was about your brother a few years ago, An Unreasonable Man, because right. that documentary, um, you and your brother and others that are interviewed uh, talk about the kind of parents your parents were, and they seem to be incredibly forward-thinking people and utilizing a lot of strategies which weren't necessarily um, the norm uh, for parents of that time. I'm wondering if you could talk about what your own parents did right and what lessons people like me can learn from them. Well, first of all, they never talked down to us. They talked to us as they talked to other people. They didn't say we were babies or kids. or We never had baby talk, but we were joyous. I mean, my parents were, my mother especially, because she had us every minute of the day. Dad was working. And uh, she had a way with children that, that just uh, brought out the best in you. And 
they never talked down to us. It was really wonderful. They, their voices didn't change, and but they still raised us. They didn't think we were adults. So we had the best. Ralph was often asked, uh, Frank, what got you into your line of work? And he said, well, the short answer is I was lucky in my choice of parents. <laughs> and I think all of us were. Uh, I, I can certainly see family. that. If, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Claire Nader, the author of the book, You Are Your Own Best Teacher. And it has a lot of great strategies for sparking the curiosity and imagination of tweens. But uh, to be frank, I think there are a lot of tips in this book that are good for adults as well. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Nader, I was I was really uh, disheartened to see a story on 60 Minutes last Sunday where one of the folks profiled talked about the difference between American children and Chinese children. And, and, and this person said that a recent survey showed that if you asked most American children what they want to be when they grow up, their answer is a social media influencer. And most Chinese children, their answer is an astronaut. And it really does make you wonder about the future of a society where the generation of young people, their number one aspiration is to be getting likes and retweets on social media, doesn't it? Yes, I think that's very, very, very problematic, dangerous, actually. And the way you, the way you try to uh, resist, uh, which is the reason I wrote the book, this is a defense, really, is to talk within the family, increase family discussions, so you get all levels of, of uh, what can I say, of wisdom, of experiences. It's, and it isn't just your mother and father, it's your aunts and uncles and cousins who are older. And it's important to, to know that you can um, raise kids in a family, anchor them. You're really anchoring them in good family discussions. One of the things that we're also seeing is pretty alarming levels of stress, anxiety, drug use, and all sorts of other negative behaviors among both teenagers and tweens. In your view, is this due in part to, or in large part, to the uh, addiction that a lot of young people have to their electronic devices and to their screens? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We Now... The, uh, the the new book by Susan Lynn, Who's Raising the Kids, Big Tech is the answer, you know, big business, big tech, and the lives of children. It is a wonderful book about the problem. The difference with my book is I'm speaking directly to them to equip them to defend themselves. So she is reading the book herself now, my book, and they complement each other. Mm. Mm. Very no, I know. I'll look forward to reading that book as well. You spend a lot of time talking about the dangers of young people living in this virtual reality world. Um, whenever I've talked about similar issues in the past, there are always parents whose children are using a lot of these screens, and they talk about how effective some of these uh, games are in terms of increasing cognition of young people, how, uh, how effective they are at uh, teaching young people technology. Speak to those parents in our audience that might view 
their children engaging in uh, virtual reality and other similar um, similar things on their devices, and they view that as a positive. Explain to them why maybe it's not. Well, uh, um, if you're raising kids today, you have youngsters like you just had, uh, and they're going to get older. They are. Uh, they have to watch themselves. They themselves are using these devices. I remember um, waiting in a dentist's office for the point for my appointment. In walks a mother, very upscale, a mother and two children, young boys. They sat down, and immediately each one of them brought out their device, their iPhone. And they were in their own world. They weren't talking to each other or anything. I was amazed. But that was just so perfect. What I do when children are, I I certainly wasn't going to go and sit and talk to them, but when I'm standing in a grocery line and I catch the eye of a child who's kind of uh, fidgeting around, waiting for the mother to finish paying for the goods and so on, uh, I catch their eye. And once they know I've seen them, you've got them. They'll talk to you. (laughs) It's fascinating. Try it. What is the solution, uh, either for adults that find themselves perpetually holding one of these smartphones in their hand and uh, looking looking at it either for entertainment or because that's what their job requires, or for a, a young person, the kind of 9 to 13-year-old that you wrote your book for. How do we turn the ship around? How do you turn the ship around? Well, you often see them walking home from school looking down at their, at their iPhone. And so when I, I take every opportunity, this is not a, this is not a solution. But you have to do what you what you can to um, to what can I say to remind them that there is a world out there that has nothing to do with this phone. You know, if I thought if I was really uh, t- trying to have a class, I think I would uh, take the children out to a garden, have them dig in the soil, and put their hands in the soil to give them a sense of the reality that they should be looking at. Nature, for example. Grow something. Contribute to your family dinner. That's I think, would have a great drawing away from the machine. One of the things fact, that I really... I I, I, I'm certain that uh, that it would, and it's not uh, when you digging in the dirt is not necessarily the kind of uh, the kind of thing that most people would think of. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book, though, is you took a lot of um, very accomplished people throughout history and you focused on their own experiences in their youth. One person that you profile uh, to some extent is uh, Benjamin Franklin. Now, a lot of us think of Benjamin Franklin as an inventor. We think of him as a great thinker, a great wit, a great ladies' man, a great founding father. But a lot of our remembrances of Benjamin Franklin is of him being as an older person, as a historical figure. We don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about Ben Franklin as a youth. What was Ben Franklin like as a young person? Well, he certainly was self-taught. He went uh, a couple of years. His father sent him to the Boston Latin School, but he couldn't afford it. He had too many children. 
So he pulled them out, and he apprenticed with his brother, who was a printer, and and then he was on his own teaching himself. So these the historical figures I take, Benjamin Franklin, Frederick Douglass, and Helen Keller, they were very self-disciplined youngsters. I took them as youngsters, not as grown-ups. And they didn't have any other choice but to teach themselves. Economically was Ben Franklin, and then the others, uh, he had to... Um, isn't um, Frederick Douglass's story amazing? It, it certainly is. Tell tell folks about that. Uh, Helen Keller's story was memorialized in that great film, uh, The Miracle Worker. So I think a lot of folks might be familiar with her, maybe less so with Frederick uh, Frederick Douglass. Well, I want to say something about Helen Keller. She she got to be known because of her disability, so called, but she was much more than that. She was much more than the the film. She went on to, all of them, by the way, all three of them took care of their immediate problems and solved them and so on. But all of them went on to talk about and work on social problems of the society they lived in. Isn't that interesting? It certainly is. And uh, it's when you look at where Frederick Douglass came from, as uh, as humble as you can imagine, he was also an autodidact, similarly self-taught, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, he had to do it to get freedom. I mean, the way mm-hmm. he taught himself how to read the letters, it's amazing, really amazing when you think of it. And you then spend... became a great orator for, for abolitionists. abolitionists. Yep. It is an in- incredibly impressive story. And uh, you spend a, a lot of time on the importance not only of uh, having young people connect with nature, but of having young people engage in physical activity. You talk about the importance of physical education. And Theodore Roosevelt, over 100 years ago, made some similar points when he was encouraging uh, younger folks, especially boys, to engage in what he called the strenuous life. Explain yes. to parents why that is so important. Why is physical activity and getting young people engaged in physical activity so important to their development as a person? Well, first of all, young people need to move. Absolutely, they need to move. They can't just sit. <clears throat> Find a child who just sits. I think that would be a problem. So they have to move. And when Jay Matthews did an op-ed <clears throat> on this book, he picked the topic of physical education and has said what he thought of it. To think that the schools are not having physical education is to know that there's a great ignorance among the old among the teachers. You have to have physical education. I remember when I was in school myself, I wanted to move. I couldn't sit all day. So we had recess called it recess at that point, and played. And when you play with your peers, you teach each other things. You teach being careful. You teach not to hurt. You just think of all the things you learned when you were playing as a child yourself. One of the things that I um, also enjoyed about your book, as 
you're giving advice to tweens themselves, you're encouraging them to ask a few very important questions. And one of the one of the best questions that I think there is for anybody to ask, but especially young people, is the question of what if. What sort of possibilities does that question open up for young people and even for adults? What if? Oh my gosh. It it makes your imagination on puts your imagination on fire. Because that's what it is. You're stimulating your imagination. What if everybody was white? What if everybody was black? What if everybody was, uh, you know, there were no, uh, uh, all the different kinds of humanity there is. And the story about, um, the musician who said that when the, he was black, a black child, that he said his 10-year-old, when he was, um, uh, when the white children were kind of going after him, he said, my, my uh, 10-year-old mind didn't, couldn't understand why they didn't like me when they didn't know me. Remember that? I do. I, I do. And uh, a similarly important question, and uh, one of the things that uh, I learned about Larry King from his por- former producer when he passed away was he viewed this as the most important question he asked in any interview. And uh, I've tried to emulate this to some extent. And she said the most important question that Larry King asked was why? And that's a question why? that you're encouraging a lot of young people to ask. Why? Yeah. Well, they... they... They normally ask why. That's why we need them. These assets they have, just because of their age group, we need in, in, among the adults. So I usually say the assets they have of the practical idealism, by the way, that is a very important characteristic they have. They have imagination, curiosity, and intellect, and so on. But when they ask why, you you open up all kinds of things. How do people, parents, um, others, enrich their dinner table discussions so that uh, they can teach young people how to think in a provocative way and think in a way that will inspire in them a curiosity and an imagination? Uh, One of the things that I learned in that documentary, An Unreasonable Man, is that was integral to your upbringing and your brother's upbringing was how your father framed certain questions. Uh, he wouldn't just ask, what did you do in school today? He would ask, um, what did you learn to think about? And things of that nature. How do yes. those of us that are parenting young children engage in a similarly provocative level of dinner table conversation? Well, you, you, there's no... Um... My mother used to say when she was asked by uh, a colleague of my sister's who's a child psychologist at Berkeley, she, she she wanted to know how mother raised and what she thought and all that. And finally, my mother said to her, Sue, what you have to understand is there are no pattern. There's no one pattern for everybody. There's no one pattern for all your children. They're different. They're different, even though they have the same mother and father. 
and um, so it's um, we we were we were taught never to run away from from an, a difference in opinion when you're talking and differing, and that was important. If you had an, a viewpoint and data to back it up, and then you got cornered by better questions from your siblings or your parents or something, you were not allowed to run for it and say, oh, okay, all right, hmm. let's stop, let's go do something else. You have to answer. That's very important. And, oh, it certainly is. And it's one that, uh, uh, that it's a skill that I've been forced to adapt to on the radio when a caller uh, makes a, a point that, uh, that I may try to evade uh, by hanging up on them. And uh, it's certainly not a great long-term strategy to handle it that way. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Claire Nader. Her book is You Are Your Own Best Teacher, Sparking the Curiosity, Imagination, and Intellect of Tweens. It's a great book uh, for both adults and for young people. And one of the other strategies that you emphasize in this book, Dr. Nader, is the ability to discern propaganda and become alert to propaganda. And that's something that I've learned is a big problem with adults and young people. How do folks know whether the news, the commentary, the entertainment, uh, the kitchen table conversation that they're experiencing is propaganda? Or just plain old regular information. Well, you have to. Uh, it depends on how you read. You have to read widely, uh, different viewpoints, and that will give you that. And who you who you trust, uh, who makes the better argument, who uh, who is solid in the way they're arguing their point. You can't. Uh, there's a lot of we call it misinformation. Well. That's intentional many times. So you you have to be able to uh, read good writing, good thoughts. Why do you say, I would like to subscribe to this magazine and not that? Well, if you just look for people who agree with you, that's not good for you. So you, you look for good arguments that are made even if they are not your arguments, you may want to respond to them. And that's what makes people think and argue and, and hopefully um, good, good things come out, come out of that argument, that you're not just uh, shooting off your mouth. In my interviews with your brother over the years, uh, one of the things that I've always been very pleased by is how many conservatives begin listening to the interview, determine that they're not going to like anything that he says. And then when he's talking about uh, maybe it's unwise to have a cashless society or uh, when he's mentioned the corporate assault on our children, something that you focus on a great deal in the book a lot of the most enthusiastic supporters of what he's saying happen to be conservatives who might have viewed his uh, politics as light years apart from them. Uh, this yes. book that you've written, this is something that is valuable to people irrespective of their politics, right? You don't have to be yeah. a conservative or a liberal or an independent to like this book. Yeah, we all bleed the same way. <laughs> That's what I have to say. 
It's very true. Very true. I, I um I have the Nader family cookbook, which is filled with all sorts of recipes from uh, your parents' restaurant. And uh, on my agenda for the weekend is the lentil and soybean soup. I'm curious, out of all the recipes in this book, do you have a favorite that you like to make? Oh, I I like good food. I don't have favorites, although people do, of course. There are things I enjoy more than others, but I like to think I can eat anything, and I'm glad to have food to eat. We were, we never were allowed to be picky. We ate what my parents ate, and they ate what we ate. Wasn't allowed to be picky. You, you can, um, as you raise your child, Frank, you can make life a lot easier if you give them the, the information right away that you're not gonna that you eat what they eat and they eat what you eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not not I have this favor, and then the mother goes crazy trying to cook for everybody in the same meal. Right, or offering uh, chicken nugget alternatives if uh, if the child doesn't like whatever uh, whatever the, yes, everybody exactly. else is being served. Yes, exactly. You got your finger right on it. Um, uh, Claire Nader, and no it processed is, food. You cook from, uh, cook from scratch. It is uh, a real treat to talk with you. I really enjoyed this book. I'm hoping everybody will check out. You're your own best teacher. As I said, there's not just great educational strategies for young people. There's some great ones for adults as well. It's a real treat yeah, to talk with you. I will say this: you. you can get it if you go to inspiringtweens.com. Inspiringtweens.com. It is uh, available on there. The book is your, You Are Your Own Best Teacher. Claire Nader, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Frank. Good luck if you with want, your child. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will, uh, I, I will, I'll need it, believe me. <laughs> yeah. if, you want to, uh, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, please uh, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. We'll continue on the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. This is uh, Hanson. This is a Matt Blaze selection. Yes. Yeah. 
But we're just sneaking about a lot tweet. of these songs uh, in here. Okay. It's a lot of 90s for one hour, though. But um, it is, uh, it's okay. It's all right. Anton's uh, it's just fine. So anyway, um, speaking of my child, one of the problems that um, that we're having is uh, the last couple of days, and so far so good for today, but the last couple of days, he's been waking up in the middle of the night. The last three days, he's been waking up in the middle of the night. And uh, he's a lot of times not hungry, and I don't know if it's because he's teething or uh, whatever the case may be, but um, Saturday it's no big deal, you know, because I'm home Saturday night, and then um, yesterday he gave my wife a such a hard time. He was uh, crying. He didn't want music. She gave him Tylenol, thinking he had teeth uh, pain. She uh, put him back in his crib. He was still screaming. Then she would take him out and uh, put him in our bedroom, and he would play. And he only stops crying when um, the two of them, my wife and Carmine, leave his bedroom. So um, he did this the last two days. And again, so far today... So good, but it's really quite a bummer because then my wife is a zombie the next day when she has to work, and unfortunately she's there by herself at night, so she's got to deal with all that um, by herself. So Saturday, we were supposed to go away. We were supposed to go to Jake's 58 on Long Island, and I got some friends meeting us there, and now she's very reluctant to go because her mom, my mother-in-law, was going to watch him since we're going to be out on Long Island. And she's very reluctant to leave him with her unless he breaks that habit. So hopefully today and tomorrow he sleeps through the night and we can still go. But we'll see. We'll see where that goes. I think it's teething pain, but we'll see. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for tuning in. You know, it's funny. Um, we're now airing. We're we're airing on a bunch of great stations: WCBM in Baltimore, WABC in New York, WLIR out on Long Island, the Nevada Talk Radio Network out in Nevada, and uh, we're adding we're airing on KBYR in Anchorage, Alaska. And whenever we add a new market to our growing network of affiliates, I try and do a little homework on um, what has gone on, the history, the politics, the uh, the local culture, the the things that are important to people there locally, because I try to make this show a local show for them, whether it's Anchorage or whether it's Baltimore or whether it's uh, anywhere. And I try to think about what my connections are to a certain place. Now, I've never been to Alaska. Um, most of my experience has been mostly limited to the continental United States, although I did visit Hawaii last year. So anyway, I, um, I, my parents had been to Alaska. I've had a lot of friends visit Alaska. I spoke to them about Alaska, got all the things to do if I'm ever in Anchorage, which I'm hoping to one day. But I thought to myself... One of the 
political figures. And one of the historical figures that I really admire most is the former U.S. Senator from Alaska, Mike Gravel, who at one time was a New Yorker. He was born in Massachusetts, but he was a New Yorker, went to Columbia University and drove a cab in New York. And I knew Mike Gravel a little bit. I was a great admirer of his. And I I would have, he ran for president a couple of times. He even ran in 2008. And he served in the U.S. Senate as a senator from Alaska from 1969 to 1981. And so in the 30 years after he finished his service in the U.S. Senate, he was very vocal on many different issues. And I agreed with him on a lot of different issues. And recently, it's funny, I went back and listened to an interview that I did with uh, Senator Gravel. And we talked, among other things, about his political background and where he came from politically and how he ended up as a senator. What are your actual politics these days? I would say independent. Uh, and, uh, and from a political point of view, I look at people and they say, well, boy, I'd like to support or see that person elected office. Like uh, right now, uh, Senator Warren of Massachusetts, boy, I'd like to see her run for president. Uh, I think she is really well-grounded and would do a very good job. But, uh, but, but I don't know. You know, I, I would try to encourage her to run. But, uh, no, it's going to be Hillary Clinton that the media is all enamored with. And uh, the Clintons uh, did know better than Obama. Uh, and, uh, and well, uh, what can I say? Mm. Uh, I, when I was in the Senate, I was more of a maverick. Uh, and you call it independent, but a maverick. I, I, I did some things, uh, followed the line on some cases and some, some cases not. Primarily the issue of uh, nuclear uh, matters and the issue of the military-industrial complex uh, were the ones that motivated me uh, to try to make corrections. And, and now I add to that the, the issue of the control of Wall Street or unbridled uh, capitalism, well, which let, is let, what we Senator, let, let's talk, if we can, about uh, the So that was eight years ago, that conversation. And it was interesting to me how this conversation was eight years ago, and yet we're describing events that took place more than 40 years before, meaning the military-industrial complex and the role that they play in um, essentially agitating for war. Because Gravel's claim to fame, if he's famous for anything, even in Alaska, I'm not sure how many people remember him, but if his claim to fame was that he read the Pentagon Papers into the national record. He didn't campaign against the Vietnam War during his first Senate campaign, but by the end of 1970, Gravel was speaking out against United States policy in Southeast Asia. And in December of that year, he persuaded William Fulbright to join him in a spontaneous two-day filibuster against a $155 million military aid package to um you know to the Cambodia's uh, to the Cambodian government in the Cambodian civil war and then um he became increasingly outspoken about the need to end the Vietnam war meantime 1971 the new york times began printing large portions of the pentagon papers 
And these papers were, as I think many of you know, a large collection of secret government documents and studies pertaining to the Vietnam War. And he read these papers into the public record. He officially introduced them into the congressional record. And we talked about this. What was revealed with the Pentagon Papers was a study that was commissioned by McNamara trying to find out what caused us to go into the swamp of Vietnam. And uh, after he read the reasons why we went into Vietnam, he classified it and did not share that with the American people. Well, in a democracy, if the people are going to have an influence on the nature of their governance, they have to be informed. And it's just the opposite. The government and the leaders not inform the people with what they're doing. And the reason I was so eager to chat about uh, Senator Gravel now is because there are so many parallels to what's happening these days and the similarity to what was happening in world affairs 40 and 50 years ago. And you know who else recognizes that? Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden was, of course, a whistleblower that uh, publicly disclosed exactly what our government was doing in terms of spying on Americans. And Edward Snowden, play, he tweeted a video the other day, which I thought was so interesting. And the video was from 1983, if you can believe it or not. And Snowden's comment was also similarly interesting. He said, um, the most important video of the year was filmed in 1983. And then uh, he goes on and retweets this video just yesterday and says on a website with people for on a website for people with a four second attention span. That's a lot of folks who stopped to watch a four minute video from 40 years ago. Real numbers. So a lot of people watch this video. And what this video depicts is Frank Snepp, a CIA officer and a discussion of how he would plant stories in newspapers This is more than 40 years ago. This is two whole generations. Not more than 40 years ago. It's 39 years ago. So it's almost 40 years ago. This is two whole generations ago. Think about what he's describing as you listen to him. And then I want you to think to yourself, is this a positive? Is this something that government agencies should be doing? Do you think they're still doing the same thing today? And should they be? This is Frank Snap talking about planning stories all the way back in 1983. You briefed the press, did you not, when you were there? Well, I had several jobs. One of my jobs was that of analyst. Uh, I also was an interrogator and indeed briefed the press when we, the CIA, wanted to uh, circulate disinformation on a particular issue. Disinformation is not necessarily uh, not necessarily a lie. It may be a half-truth, and uh, we would pick out a journalist. I would go do the briefing and uh, hope that he would put the information in print. For instance, uh, if we wanted to get uh, across to the American public that the North Vietnamese were building up their force structure in South Vietnam, I would go to a journalist and advise him that in the past uh, six months, X number of North Vietnamese forces had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail system through southern Laos. Now, there is no way a journalist can check that information. 
So either he goes with the information or he doesn't, and ordinarily or usually the journalist would go with it because it, was, it looked like some kind of exclusive. And um, I would say our percentage of planning that kind of data was uh, 70 to 80 percent. The correspondents we targeted were those who had terrific influence, the most uh, respected journalists in Saigon, like Robert Chaplin of the New Yorker magazine, Kai's Beach uh, of the Los Angeles Times from time to time, and also he worked for the Chicago Daily News, uh, Bud Merrick of U.S. News and World Report, uh, Malcolm Brown of the New York Times, uh, even Maynard Parker of Newsweek magazine. Uh, we would uh, go after these gentlemen. Uh, I would uh, be directed to cultivate them, to spend time with them at uh, the Caravelle Hotel or the Continental Hotel, to socialize with them, and, and slowly but surely to try to gain their confidence by dolloping out uh, valid information, information which was true. And then I would drop in a, into a conversation the data that we wanted to get across which might not be true. Uh, one piece of data, for instance, uh, that uh, we managed to plan in the New Yorker magazine had to do with uh, a supposed North Vietnamese effort in 1973 to develop airfields along the border of South Vietnam. The reason we wanted to plant this information was that uh, we were trying to persuade the U.S. Congress that Saigon should uh, be continued to, uh, should continue to get a great deal of aid. Uh, and that uh, the North Vietnamese were the chief violators of the ceasefire accord. That was printed in uh, the New Yorker magazine under the byline of Robert Chaplin, as indeed was a great deal of such information which, uh, which we tried to circulate. If I planted a piece of information with a reporter, I would ordinarily then try to create an environment in which he could not check the information. I would go to the British ambassador and brief him on the disinformation I had just given the reporter. So when the reporter wanted to cross-check what I told him with, uh, say, the British ambassador, New Zealand ambassador, or what have you, he would get false confirmation, the same message coming back at him. He'd say, aha, I've got proof that Frank Snap told me the truth, when in fact what he'd gotten was simply an echo of what uh, I'd given him in the first place via the British ambassador or other of our friendly diplomatic contacts. I am, as an ex-CI agent, uh, opposed to the disinformation activities uh, in which I was involved. I admit that I was involved and I think it uh, uh, served no useful purpose uh, propagandizing the American uh, public or Congress is not the CIA's job. So, you think that still goes on? I do. You think that's wise? You think that's a important use of your tax dollars? Think about how distorted the news you're likely seeing is, if that does still go on. 800-848-9222. Whenever you see a story that quotes anonymous uh, sources or intelligence sources say or uh, sources with information on the, on the whatever the story is say – Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. It's strategic what the CIA is doing. So I find it's more important than ever to have voices like Edward Snowden, Glenn Greenwald, Mike Gravel out there speaking up loudly 
against the military-industrial complex. 800-848-9222. Hey, I'm very excited. Coming up in about 10 minutes, I'll talk to my old friend, Harry Hurley. We're going to go live to Atlantic City. Harry Hurley not only knows a lot about Atlantic City, he knows about everything. Knows about electoral politics, knows about uh, the culture, knows about all sorts of things. We're going to pick his brain on a wide variety of uh, subjects for the AC Report. 800-848-9222-123456. Open lines. Let me say hello to Gina in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. Frank, thank you for that interview with Claire Nader. It was very interesting. You thank know, you. I agree. Oh, that was great. I'm going to get that book and even a few to give as gifts to young mothers. Yeah, it's a short but, book, uh, so I definitely recommend it. I'm going to do that. But you know, I want to share with you an experience related to something she said. I was sitting at a bus stop, and there was a young mother up looking at her phone and her two young children twirling around like spinning like tops disconnected they weren't acknowledging each other but they were together there were a lot of delivery trucks parked in front of the bus stop and the little girl who was about six or seven caught my eye when she stopped spinning and she said to me I don't know why they parked in front of this bus stop. How is the bus going to pick us up? And I said to her, because you can't ignore children. Sure. I said, you know, they should have thought of that before they parked here. And the mother gave me the dirtiest look (laughs) for engaging her child in a conversation. And the little girl, she picked up on that and then just started spinning around again. So I want to ask you, don't you remember parents raising us saying, don't speak to strangers? Yeah, I, uh, yes, I do remember that, certainly. You know, so it's kind of like a funny thing socially where we're at, where you do want to bring children back to reality. And then there's those old nuances, you know, you don't speak to strangers little complex. It's true. Uh, That's true. Um, That's an interesting anecdote. I appreciate you sharing that, Gina. Thank you. I have never been one of the um, don't speak to strangers people, right? I think you have to teach your child to exercise good judgment, right? Even, you know, at a fairly young age, five, six years old, if a stranger is, um, you know, rolling down in a car on your block and they uh, they said, hey, kid, come with me. I have a candy bar for you. That's one thing. But if, uh, you know, a woman is at a bus stop or uh, and you happen to be there and they make an innocuous comment, as was the case with Gina, I don't think that falls into the don't speak with strangers category. I don't. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, Lenore Skenazy on that subject. 800-848-9222. Richie is in the Boogie Down Bronx. This is not uh, Congressman Richie Torres, is it? No, it isn't. Ah, that's my loss then, I guess. What's on your mind, Richie? Okay, good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, Your guest, J.C. Coles, didn't mention the most imminent cause of supply chain disruptions, the current administration's energy policy. All right. Well, I guess that uh, would exacerbate the, you know, the likelihood that uh, there's going to be some sort of energy interruption, I would I would think. We're already experiencing that. Um, heating oil is being rationed in the Northeast. 
and uh, the manifestations of the energy policy, I think, will pretty soon be magnified geometrically. So what are you doing to prepare? I don't think there's anything you can do to prepare. Everything, just about everything we do in life uh, depends upon energy at some stage of the production distribution cycle. And if there's not enough energy, which uh, the administration is discouraging traditional energy, um, there's going to be shortages of just about everything, including food. Hmm. I, I think a complete collapse of the whole economy. Well, um, it sounds like a good time, Richie, if there is going to be a heating oil disruption. Uh, stock up on blankets, right? I mean, we're going into winter. You've got to get as many blankets as you can. 800-848-9222. Mike is in parts unknown. Uh, Mike, on my screen it says you're from Lake George, but uh, whenever I say you're from Lake George, you always say, no, I'm in the Carolinas. No, I'm in Long Island. No. I'm in this place. I'm in that place. So I'm just going to say parts unknown. Frankie, too funny. That's why I keep tuning in and always good conversations with Kenny. Let's go, Cortland. No, yeah, I mean, I'm in Myrtle Beach, South Kakalaki for six months. I was in Lake George. I sold my one-bedroom uh, 55 community uh, early May in Florida. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like Willie Nelson. Where's my drumsticks, you know? Absolutely. Uh, but, I, uh, you know, Frank, um, before you always, always enjoy your show conversation and you know before you uh, interview uh, your friends from Atlantic City I'm going to talk a little about my gambling in Atlantic City uh, I mentioned on the show uh, I call him Sakuda a crazy Yankee fan uh, he retired from Caesars after 40, 41 years and when I went down there uh, I'd always gravitate to the blackjack table I, I played third base to hot corner the last seat before the dealer and um, and then it got to the point, you know, uh, I needed action every day, um, you know, playing the ponies a little and doing this. And then I said to myself, hey, you know what? Downshift, enough is enough. And I took a break. You know, I took a break for over two years. And uh, I've even spoken, uh, Frank, in front of a group of people, young, young people, uh, Long Island, about the evils of uh, uh, drinking, the most dangerous drug in the world is alcohol and drugs and gambling and even, uh, you know, uh, suicide prevention, that, that type of thing, which you spoke about. But you know what? Uh, I'm going to get into a conversation later, Frank. I, I like to get into conversations, especially uh, good-looking gals, uh, a little uh, conversational foreplay. <laughs> hey, right. I don't and blame that, you. I don't blame you, Mike. Uh, thank you very much. We're going to talk with Harry Hurley coming up in a couple of minutes, get his take on the elections. And, uh, you know, you know, one of the interesting things to come out of that election in New Jersey – Tom Kane Jr. is going to Congress. And uh, Tom Kane's uh, father, obviously legendary New Jersey Governor Tom Kane, he's been on the show before. Uh, he's one of the public officials that uh, I really have a great deal of respect for. But uh, Tom Kane Jr. has been trying to go to Congress for a while. He ran two years ago. He'd run for U.S. Senate against Bob Menendez. And now he's finally going to Washington. So uh, he's young enough that uh, he could have a very bright political career. Ahead of him, 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frankie. How you doing tonight? I'm hanging in there. Thanks. I was listening to that interview with uh, Nader, and um, I have to agree the dangers of the uh, the iPads and the, the, the uh, 
you know, the cell phones with these kids today. My advice to you, don't do what I see a lot of parents do when we call mine. Don't encourage them to be mesmerized by these uh, devices at such a young age. I say let them explore, enjoy life. It's too much, Frank, to them to learn. It, and I feel that it's too much stuff right in their face at such young ages. And um, a, a shout-out also to uh, Mike from uh, – I call him now Nomad Mike because he's all over the place uh, from Palm Beach and all over. I know he's uh, dealing with the loss of his uh, mom. My condolences to him. And, uh, Frank, um, when are you going to be out at Jake's, you were saying? Uh, maybe Saturday. Maybe Saturday. It depends on um... – on Carmine's uh, sleeping schedule uh, today and tomorrow, but I'm hoping to be there Saturday. So uh, you text me. Uh, if you're around, uh, stop by and say hello. I'd love to see you. Well, I'll uh, stop up there. Maybe I'll buy you a drink. Hey, so, uh, believe uh, me, then make sure you uh, text me then if that's the case. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, Frank. All right. Take care. Thank you very much, Joe. Appreciate it. We're going to talk with Harry Hurley in uh, the AC report in uh, just a moment. 800-848-9222. Tommy, two times, two times is calling from Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Hey, Frank. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Um, listen, um, that lady that was just talking on Nader about the, the tweens and, and the lady at the yep. bus stop yep. with the children. Mm-hmm. Well, I had, I had I had an incident when I was a kid. I didn't learn. You know, no, nobody taught me. I got, uh, you know, I got uh, molested. And oh, I'm, I'm a survivor. I'm, no, 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 don't be sorry. I'm a survivor. I got through it. I'm doing okay. It's true. You got to teach your children this stuff. You know, there are bad people out there, even doctors. You know what I mean? Even your next door neighbor. You don't even know. You got to be careful with that. Hey, Tommy, let me, let me ask you a question. One of the Because sure. I've done a great deal of research into this. And one of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize is that the overwhelming majority of cases of uh, children being uh, abducted, assaulted, molested, it's almost always, uh, for, uh, by adults, it's almost always an adult that they know or have had some sort of a relationship with. In your case, without getting into any details that you don't want to share, was it someone that you knew or was it a stranger? Uh, yeah, one was a doctor, two were neighbors, actually a couple of were neighbors. I had uh, two older girls and ladies that were I used to babysit for, and um, that was well. And uh, a couple of neighbors, you know, this guy that was right next door to me, I, he was the best guy in the world. He had, he had a bow and arrow, he'd shoot into trees, he let me use it, and the next thing you know, I'm six years old. I don't know what the hell I'm done. Yeah, anyway. no, I understand that. I understand that, Tommy. But but I think uh, and I, the only reason I mentioned that, and I'm glad you, you shared that, and I appreciate that, and I'm glad you were tough enough to pull through all that, and I'm glad you're doing well now. The reason I mentioned that is because there is this perception that the 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 people that are most likely to harm a child is this stranger it, uh, running around in a in a in an unmarked van like a different strokes episode or something yeah. and um that's not the case and Tommy thank you for the call um we got a break there but the 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 best thing that they say in terms of keeping kids safe against sex crimes and Look, obviously, as the father of an 11-month-old, I don't think there's anything that I'm more concerned about than this. They say it's the three R's, right, is recognize it, meaning, you know, a child should know, even at a young age, that no one should touch you where your, you know, bathing suit covers. 
Two is resist it. You want that child screaming, fighting, running, because if they do that and somebody hears that, that is going to, in almost every instance, lead an adult, yes, in many cases, a stranger, to want to help. And three is to report it. You tell your children if anyone makes them feel weird or wants them to keep any sort of a secret, they should always report it to you, the parent, and you're not going to be mad. And that certainly helps dissipate a lot of the guilt and it destroys a lot of the secrecy that predators uh, prey upon. So, um, yeah, it's a, a very real issue, but I think people misunderstand what the nature of the danger is. It's not stranger danger. It's um, it, it's so often somebody that these children have in their lives, and that's what the real shame of it is. All right, hey, uh, on to more upbeat subjects like uh, forthcoming trips to Atlantic City. I don't know when my next trip is going to be. I'm hoping I get there at least once before New Year's Eve, but we'll see. Guy that knows Atlantic City backwards and forwards, the politics, the culture, the dining, everything about it is Harry Hurley. Uh, You could frequently hear him filling in for Brian Kilmeade, who's also coming up a little bit later. He joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. most interesting communities anywhere in the world. And uh, the person that is going to help us take a look at that today is the morning man at the fa- my favorite radio station that does not carry our show, WPG Talk Radio in Atlantic City. Harry Hurley is not only one of the finest radio broadcasters in America, it's not just me saying that, but Talkers Magazine has said that, the uh, New Jersey Broadcasters Association has said that, everybody said that. He 
He's in the New Jersey Broadcasters Hall of Fame. First South Jerseyan ever to be in that Hall of Fame. He's also a former Trump Casino executive and a longtime friend of mine. Harry, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, great to be on the other side of midnight. And I love your love for Atlantic City. Well, thank you. Yeah, I feel like people really get down on Atlantic City, especially people that don't visit there and people that uh, have not been there in a while. And uh, sometimes people, uh, I get emails and uh, Facebook correspondence saying, oh, you're not really telling the truth about what goes on in Atlantic City. Meanwhile, I feel like I do a pretty good job putting a balanced perspective. And if my enthusiasm uh, for visiting Atlantic City leads to a rosier picture, then so be it. I guess the same thing could be said about when I speak of New York or or a, a variety of other things. Uh, Harry, Tuesday was election day. Let me get your initial thoughts on how the elections uh, turned out. Uh, are you pleased? Are you not so pleased? Give me your, your hot take on the election. I, I must be in an alternative universe because I have not been playing this game that the national media and their fellow Democrats are feverishly trying to spin losing into winning. Because when you win, you win. Nobody said the Astros didn't win the World Series because they won game four, three to two, instead of 10 to one. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, Republicans have won the House. They'll have at least 225 to 230 seats. That's a great win. They're probably going to win the Senate in the neighborhood of 51 or 52 seats. If you said these numbers in advance, everyone would call that a great win. This is being spun into somehow Biden will not have a challenge now within the Democratic Party. He's a winner. The Democrats are winners. Hey, how about 200 million that they blew on perennial losers, Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams? Maybe that could have been spent on winning some House seats. Uh, I, I look at this very differently than the spin I'm hearing right now. Uh, so uh, the day before the election, you posted on Facebook the, uh, you said a whole lot of bad Democrats are getting fired tomorrow. Can you say great day? It will be a great day in America. Now, a lot of other folks that I follow on, on social media were saying similar things. And then when the results came in and uh, maybe it wasn't the tsunami of uh, winning 54 seats in the U.S. Senate and winning uh, blue state governorships like in Oregon and New York and in uh, other places like that, they ended up being disappointed. Do you think that's a reflection, as you say, of people buying into the, the spin that uh, some in the mainstream media? and maybe the National Democratic Party is trying to spin? Well, of course, that's exactly what's happening. And there's about 55 seats that have still not been called. Mm -hmm. So there are many more races that are going to be won and lost. Uh, Democrats did lose in New York. You had the DCCC chair of finance lose his seat. I mean, that hasn't happened in, I don't think, ever. Uh, And people did lose in Oregon. And this is a much better win Republicans, then I, I got to give them credit. I mean, it's like they had a plan. If it, it, they, they overstate how how many um, seats will be won, and then when it's less than that, <laughs> declare victory. How did things turn out in New Jersey? Well, if you remember the last time I appeared on uh, the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, I guaranteed you and your great number one listenership that Tom Kane Jr. would win the 7th Congressional District seat, that he would, in the rematch, defeat Tom Malinowski, and he comfortably did that. So that was a great win. Uh, New Jersey has three 
Republican members of the House of Representatives. Not long ago, it was only one. And really not long ago, Republicans had the majority of the seats. So Republicans are on the move in New Jersey. They've won districts one, two, and three uh, at the state level and now hold uh, two, three, and seven, uh, two, four, and seven. So it's, uh, they're on the move. Uh, Tom Kane Jr. is somebody that uh, has run for statewide office before. Obviously, his family name in New Jersey Public Service goes back, I think, hundreds of years. He's someone that uh, I have to think has a pretty bright political future that probably extends beyond Congress, right? Couldn't, couldn't agree more. He's a really good man. And obviously, his pedigree is amazing. And he brings a fantastic name to the table, former two-term popular governor, former chairman of the 9-11 Commission with Lee Hamilton, Tom Kane Sr. Uh, Tom Kane Jr. is as good as they get. He'll be an outstanding member of the People's House. And it was a great win for the country because he's he's really a good man. Speaking of juniors, um, Robert Menendez Jr. is going to Congress and uh, his father, Bob Menendez, the U.S. Senator from New Jersey, still in Congress. They're going to be the first father and son in Congress since Ron and Rand Paul. Um, uh, Bob Menendez, of course, was opposed by Tom Kane a few years ago, I think probably about 10, uh, 12 years ago. And uh, now we're hearing a lot of these same rumors about Menendez being under federal investigation. Now, I hate to kind of give life to uh, just a rumor mill, no indictment, nothing, and just act like these people are convicted. But I'm also a political realist. I'm curious, in New Jersey, are we hearing any any whispers about strong Republicans that may seek to run against Menendez in two years because of these rumors about a forthcoming indictment? Bob Menendez and people get mad at me uh, that are just so partisan they can't they can't see through their partisan anger. Bob Menendez is as close to Teflon as you will ever find. <laughs> he and I are not friends, but he knows me and I know him. I have a soft spot for the guy. I agree with your comment about this word either, and he's not indicted, but this word indictment or under federal criminal investigation. The country has taken that now to accusation is equivalent to guilt. It's a terrible thing. Bob Menendez, when he was in the thick of the previous problem with Dr. Melgan and all that stuff and the flights uh, and all of this that was going on, he couldn't be beaten then. Uh, Let me advise your audience that Robert Menendez Jr. not only won the 8th District seat, he got 73% of the vote. That almost never happens uh, in America. The Menendez name in New Jersey is not as tarnished as it is nationally. Uh, He's been immune to scandal, accusation. And by the way, when you said that um, this is rumor, this and that, it is confirmed. He's under federal criminal investigation, and it won't matter unless he's convicted. Do you see uh, any of the other seats, the current New Jersey congressional seats, which I guess this is going to be the map for the next decade, being competitive in future years. Uh, There was a lot of talk that uh, the Josh Gottheimer seat might be a winnable seat for Republicans, the Mikey Sherrill seat. Are there any other Democratic congressional seats which you think the Republicans in New Jersey will be targeting in the next couple of years? 
Frank, I can't pick one by name, but they're going to go for all of them. Just mm-hmm. like at the state level, uh, it wasn't long ago at the state level that Democrats had had it all. Then all of a sudden, District 1 flipped. A uh, big part of that was Van Drew switching to Republican and going to the uh, United States House of Representatives. And that opened up Senator Testa to uh, to become the senator. They flipped the first. Vince Palestina, Senator Palestina, flipped the second. The the shocking to some, but if you look at the composition composition of the district, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it had never happened. The sitting longest-serving Senate president in New Jersey history, Steve Sweeney, was defeated basically by a truck driver mm. uh, who spent, I think it was like a hundred hours uh, on his campaign. It was it was unbelievable, and the district has been made even more Republican now. So that went from no districts that were Republican to, as you know, you have a senator, two members of the lower uh, chamber, which is called the New Jersey General Assembly. Those six seats were all Democrats or uh, nine seats. They're all Republican now, all nine of them. So you build from there. Uh, they're going to con- they're going to contest everywhere, Frank. And some of them are not attainable. But you, you still run a race because if you give someone a pass, then they don't have to run and then sure. they can help somebody else beat you. So they're going to run everywhere. Let me ask you about this uh, question that was on the ballot in Atlantic City. I was really hoping that it would pass, and uh, it uh, looks like it was defeated, the initiative for nonpartisan elections. What happened there, and uh, if, in fact, it was defeated, what do you see as the reason as to why it was? It was defeated. It was it, it was a close election. I'm not going to say a squeaker, but it was a few hundred votes difference. Uh, turnout was low. Uh, and you have to give the side that wants to keep what they got credit for running a campaign to have people vote no. For your listeners, and I've studied this for the past 31 years that I've been in this business, Frank, very hard to get people to vote no. Every question you ever face in the ballot, think about it. Uh, we're going to build a new school. We're going to build a new sports stadium, uh, casino gaming, yes or no. Every question that's ever formulated is formulated with a predisposed bias that you should vote yes. Very hard to beat a yes question. They did it. They won. Uh, And so uh, this was, uh, I know the mayor was dead set against this, Mayor Marty Small. is this? he had to be. Let me explain that. He had to be because he had no chance to win. If it got moved to May, he can't win. His his ability to win is predicated upon Atlantic City being about an eight, nine to one Democrat versus Republican registration city. And so when you are the Democratic nominee, you won in June in the primary. You could go away for the whole general election and you can't lose. Uh, That's the reason also that the question failed, because he knew he was on the ballot. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Makes sense. Hey, uh, speaking of the uh, the mayor of Atlantic City, Friday is uh, Veterans Day. He's doing something today at the uh, Bernie Friedenberg World War II uh, Memorial. What's going on there? For those who don't know, Bernie Friedenberg was an amazing man. He won, He was awarded two Silver Star medals, two Bronze Star medals, two Purple Hearts, uh, just, an, just an extraordinary hero during World War II. There's going to be an amazing 3,500-pound bronze uh, statue of Bernie Friedenberg cradling um, a wounded soldier, and that is going to be a part of what's called O'Donnell Park in Atlantic City, which, by the way, is within vision of 
Harry Hurley Way, the street sign. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a picture up about it, actually. Uh, so that's what's going to be happening. He's going to be announcing a six-figure. He hasn't confirmed. So obviously six-figure is at least 100000 The committee itself has raised over 350000 It will be funded, and it will be an amazing memorial uh, that um, is – well deserved. Wonderful, wonderful. That that's great. There's um there's also on the boardwalk a, a very uh, there's just a breathtaking Korean War veteran memorial there as well. Which uh, the next time people visit Atlantic City, they should uh, absolutely be sure to check out. Whether it's Veterans Day weekend or whether it's not, it's a, a phenomenal, yep. uh, phenomenal memorial. Uh, very. Uh, by fitting. the way, Frank, also Kennedy Plaza on the boardwalk, which I know you have seen. There was a sculptor by the name of Ferdakis that sculpted the most beautiful. Uh, sculpture of President Kennedy that's been there since 1964. For those who don't know, Atlantic City was the host city for the 1964 Democratic National Convention, which was supposed to be Kennedy's convention. But of course, he was assassinated the year before. Uh, So that is up there on the boardwalk as well. Uh, As you mentioned, those who think that Frank Morano somehow is, you know, in the tank and and lies about Atlantic City. I I remind your audience every chance I get, Frank, that more people come to Atlantic City every year than Disney World's The Magic Kingdom. It's a great city. I I would challenge anyone to top the rooms, the entertainment policy, the food and beverage. I mean, it's a great town. And uh, for me, even the aspects of it that are are lacking are still pretty interesting to talk about. I find it uh, a pretty fascinating uh, conversation to have just about every aspect of the culture. Talking with Harry Hurley, by the way, if you're just tuning in, you can hear him on uh, WPG. You can hear him occasionally uh, sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Uh, You mentioned earlier Steve Sweeney, the New Jersey Senate president, being defeated. He obviously represented South Jersey very close to the casino industry. A lot of folks assumed that once he went down, a movement that had been building for a long time, which was the movement to do away with smoking in casinos, would be essentially a fait accompli. I know this fight has been ramping up and things may be coming to a head. What's happening with the battle over banning smoking in casinos? The uh, Clean Air Act, which prohibits smoking basically everywhere indoors, carved out an exemption for the casino industry, which obviously for the casino industry, it's popular. There are a lot of their best players who love a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other, possibly a cigar. Speaking to a great cigar aficionado, (laughs) Frank Morano, so you can appreciate that. And, of course, if you're a dealer and you have smoke being blown in your face, uh, you hate it. Uh, So it's been a a tremendous tug tug of war from the very beginning. This is the closest it's ever been to actually happening. And I believe what's going to happen is it's and it's languished for about a year. uh, And people are wondering, oh, my gosh, is it going to happen again? They won't post it. The votes are there. There's enough votes in the Senate and in the Assembly to pass it, and the governor has said he will sign it, uh, but yet it hasn't happened. So I think that Senator Scatari is not rushing to post it because the industry has done their own studies. They believe that economically it will be very disadvantageous. Uh, they don't want it. They want to keep it. You're going to see a negotiated settlement of some kind, and I think it will happen this year. Oh, you do. So, uh, all right. Well, you have a pretty good head for this stuff. So it's going to be. It won't. It will not be passed necessarily, but word of a negotiated settlement 
will happen over the next couple of months. Mm. Uh, lastly, Harry, you know, Atlantic City, even when it was at its uh, nadir, when it was struggling, when you had five casinos all closed in the same year, even then, it was always really busy during the summer. When it goes into fall, when it goes into winter, that's when things are a little bit more uh, difficult to see how things are going. How do things look for Atlantic City going into the fall months? Well, very strong. Uh, Atlantic City uh, has a record number of conventions and events that are taking place. So when the business is there in the summer, you don't necessarily have to drive the special events. Although this summer, and I think it was pandemic driven because so many people were just pent. The pent up demand was amazing. This was the, the most events during the summer that I can ever remember. Uh, but during the off season, they drive a tremendous amount of convention business. Yeah. Uh, Atlantic City, it used to be a four-month town if you were lucky. It's a 12-month town. The business is always here. And it, it's either your summer, nonstop, you know, uh, insanity, or, and I mean that in a good way, or it's um, driving the business midweek, especially when it otherwise wouldn't be there with great events such as this week, uh, New Jersey School Boards Association. Hmm. So there's always something going on in Atlantic City. Atlantic City is very competitive when they go across the country and bid on uh, bringing big events. Very desirable. Harry Hurley, it was uh, great to see you at your charity gala where uh, you honored Jeff Van Drew at a big re-election. I'm looking forward to being back uh, next year with uh, Brian Kilmeade, who's joining us next hour, as your uh, repeat honoree. And I will look forward to seeing you before that as well. Thanks so much, as always, Harry. Frank, great to be with you. Keep, keep doing it. Thank you very much. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the Black Crows Jealous Again. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, uh, just join uh, the Facebook group, uh, Murano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. You know, it's funny. I noticed, you know, I have like an antenna for this kind of thing. I noticed before when I was walking into the radio studio, right outside our studio, there's a little glass table. Now, on this glass table is usually things that people can take. There's uh, two bottles of Balance of Nature. There's um, a show clock for this show, The Other Side of Midnight. There's a whiteboard cleaner, a, a spray that you would spray on a whiteboard that would clean it. And there are uh, two bottles of wine. Now, it was I'm not familiar with this particular wine, but it looks like pretty nice bottles of wine. So I start looking around, and I start asking around. I, I say, hey, does anybody know 
whose wine this is. What what the story is here is this up for grabs or is this somebody's or is it for a forthcoming celebration? So none of our guys know what the deal is. They said they were wondering the same thing. So then uh, Deb Valentine, who does the news for uh, WABC in New York, she is usually in the loop on this kind of thing. And she's here later than I am, so she she knows. She knows all sorts of things. That's why she is tasked with delivering the news. And um, and she said, well, I, I don't know what the story is here. I think it might have been for Governor Pataki. Um, and so... I said, well, that's interesting. And she said, would you like one? Would you like to take them home? I said, well, I mean, if they're up for grabs, I wouldn't want to see someone else take them home. But um, I feel like that's the kind of thing that I would get in trouble for. I feel like somebody would see me taking the wine and I would get in trouble. And Deb said she came up with a great solution. She said, would it make you feel better if you took one home and I took one home? And I said, yes, it absolutely would. So that is the story. If you're if you're listening to this program right now and this is your wine, if you work here, please let me know. Otherwise, I think that's the plan that we're going with is uh, come one hour from now. I'm going to take a bottle home. Deb is going to take a bottle home. And uh, I promise it will be put to very good use because you know what goes on at our house, especially on the weekend. You never know who's going to stop by. Right. At, at any given moment. You have to be prepared to entertain anybody, right? And then, obviously, you need some wine. And so this will get sent to very good use. And if it was originally intended for Governor Pataki, then um, all the more reason that it will be a novelty in the Morano household, right? You know, I've grown to like Governor Pataki quite a bit. I never voted for him. I was a three-time Tom Golisano supporter, but he's such a nice guy and such a smart guy that whenever I see him, whenever I talk to him, and he's always been very gracious about coming on the radio, super nice whenever I've run into him at the radio station, he is. I always feel guilty for never having voted for him. So that's that. Um, all right. We got an action-packed hour next hour coming up. Brian Kilmeade is going to be here. We're going to get his take on the elections and a, a few other situations going on that I think you're going to get a big kick out of. We'll have some fun next hour as well. Enough talk of um, CIA planting stories and children being abducted onto lighter issues. This is The Other Side of Midnight. In the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. All right. Here's a question for you. 
especially if you're a dentist, but even if you're a regular person. You see, I've got all sorts of dental questions on my brain today because I am waking up in the middle of the afternoon to go to the dentist. And I just see this day resulting in a an argument with my wife at some point because I could see how this is going to play out. All right, so I get up uh, in the middle of the morning to go get my haircut. I come back to try and sleep a little more. I get up in the middle of the afternoon to go to the dentist, and the dentist keeps me there longer than necessary. And uh, I then have to come back, get shower, get dressed, and go to this party. And my wife is going to be annoyed that I'm not looking after our son while she's working. See, the thing with Carmine, though, is his nap schedule is unpredictable. So um, maybe we'll get lucky and he will nap while I'm at the dentist. That would be a perfect world. Although I'm not quite a perfect world because then if he naps when I come back, then I could nap. But. We'll see. This day has disaster written all over it. If um, you know, tune in tomorrow to see how I survive. Now, anyway, I'm reading the New York Times magazine over the weekend, and it ra- it raises. Actually, it was the previous weekend. The headline in the Ask Well section raises a very interesting question, and I have to confess. It is one that I have thought a great deal about over the years and one that I've never really made my mind up on. Here's the question that it asks. Is it better to brush your teeth before breakfast or after? Believe it or not, this is a hotly debated question in dentistry. I'd love to know what you do and why. 800 I'm going to tell you what the experts say, and then um, I'll give you what I do. So the case for brushing before breakfast is the following. So for a lot of people, breakfast includes sugary carbohydrates. That's according to Dr. Carlos Gonzalez Cabezas a dentist and a professor at um, the University of Michigan, Michigan School of Dentistry. Cereals, breads, muffins, pancakes, these all contain fermentable carbohydrates that bacteria love to feed on. And when you wake up in the morning, bacterial levels in your mouth are at their peak. That's why you have bad breath when you wake up. So a mouth rife with bacteria and a breakfast full of sugary carbs means that conditions are perfect for the bacteria to flourish and multiply. And when that happens, they release acids that can wear down the protective enamel on your teeth, making them more prone to to cavities. I have to confess, I never knew any of that. Never. My attitude was, why should I brush right before I'm going to eat? I feel like I'm working backwards. So, What I do, I don't always have breakfast, but certainly on the weekend I do. So what I do is I will brush my teeth after breakfast. But a lot of times during the week, I end up skipping breakfast or having breakfast much later in the day. And, you know, something um, like just something quick. And I will then, in those cases during the week, brush before breakfast because there's no breakfast. The lunch is my breakfast. So I, uh, I've i done both. On the weekend, I brush after breakfast when I do have a conventional breakfast. During the week, I brush before breakfast. But other people disagree. 
this is the case for brushing after breakfast. The reality is that most people don't brush that well, according to one dentist. Even if you brush right before breakfast, you probably will still have bacteria lingering in your mouth that could multiply and produce acids during breakfast and for the rest of the day. So you may as well brush after you eat to minimize that lingering food. Interesting. Interesting. And according to this dentist quoted in the Times, the fluoride from your toothpaste will work better throughout the day if it's not displaced by chewing food right after you brush. Some experts argue that brushing your teeth too soon after a meal, especially one with acidic beverages like coffee or orange juice, will damage your enamel. Dr. D. Aguirre Ribeiro recommended that if you can, wait at least 30 minutes after a meal to brush. If you want to get rid of lingering breakfast bits before then, she suggested drinking or swishing water. So the bottom line, according to these experts, is the decision boils down to what works for you. Because the science is sparse and there is no consensus. 800-848-9222. Do you brush your teeth before breakfast or after breakfast? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. There is no proof either way. So all these arguments are largely theoretical. It's highly debated, and it ultimately may not make significant clinical difference. By the way, whenever we discuss dentistry or anything teeth-related, I will put in my normal uh, public service announcement, and the dentists get very upset when I say this, but I tell the truth, even to the dentistry community. That's probably a dangerous thing when I'm going to the dentist today. Flossing is so much more important than brushing. Floss, floss, floss. I know so many people that brush two, three times a day and they don't floss. Flossing leads to a longer life and better dental care. And flossing is more important than brushing. But for those of you that do brush, do you do it before breakfast or after? 800-848-9222. Brian is in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hello, Brian. Hey, Frank. Uh, I'm an after-brusher, but there's a caveat, and it speaks directly to the point you made. First thing I do, the first thing I do is rinse with mouthwash. Well, when you wake up before breakfast. Yes. Yes. Rinse with mouthwash, kills the bacteria, and then off we go. And brush after eating. Brush and floss after eating. Well, it sounds like that might be the perfect strategy, Brian. Yeah, my wife gave me that hint a few years ago, and I've religiously done it ever since. You know, it makes sense, and I'm trying to think what I do here, because uh, my schedule is very unusual because, uh, you know, just the nocturnal hours and so forth. I think I do that sometimes just because when I wake up, sometimes I'm so overwhelmed by my own bad breath that I will rinse with with mouthwash or something to get the bad breath, the morning breath out of there. 
and then I'll go about my day for a couple hours. And then, yeah, if I have breakfast, I will I will eat. But that's interesting, uh, Brian. Thank you. 800-848-9222. The debate among dentists is fierce. And you don't like to fight with dentists because they've got um, drills. By the way, there was a film one time. I don't know if you saw it. I don't. I feel like a lot of people didn't didn't see it. Uh, Dead Ringers with Jeremy Ryan, uh, Jeremy Irons, who's a phenomenal actor. Very creepy. Very creepy. It's a psychological thriller. Jeremy Irons is he plays twin dentists. I no 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 no. They were not dentists. Um, they were gynecologists. Okay. You got it's it's still very creepy. It has nothing to do with this discussion, but it's very uh, very creepy. Eight hundred eight four. Based on a true story, highly fictionalized, but based on a true story. Do you brush before? Do you brush after breakfast? Jose is in New Jersey. Hello, Jose. Yes. Good morning. How are you today, Frank? I'm well. Thanks. The most important thing about it, brushing the teeth is flossing. Brushing is not really important. Flossing. Yep. Floss that you teeth is the most important thing. Always floss your teeth. Don't go to bed before you floss your teeth. That's my opinion. I completely agree with you, Jose. I completely agree. But look, there are a lot of people out there that brush as well. If the people that brush, do you urge them to brush before breakfast or after? Always before, uh, before. breakfast. Always. Because of this bacteria case. issue? Yes, always before breakfast. Interesting. Okay, thank you, Jose. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. My buddy Hank is in New Jersey. Hank, first, let me thank you for the uh, Met baseball cards that you sent uh, Young Carmine. That was very kind of you. I'm glad to do it. I hope he enjoys it when he gets to uh, figure out what team he wants to follow. Maybe his father will let him pick his own. Absolutely. No, I'm not going to urge him. In fact, if I, I would encourage him to be a Yankee fan because there's no reason he should be uh, sentenced to the lifetime of heartbreak that I've had to endure. As a kid in Brooklyn, my father and the whole family were Brooklyn Dodger fans. And I was a New York Yankee fan. I had a tough time, but I did it. Frank, I think I, I agree with the previous uh, two callers. I wake up in the morning. First thing I do is I use a Listerine to uh, rinse out my mouth to give it that bad taste. And then uh, I, I sometimes I'll even brush in the before breakfast. Uh, I don't brush after each meal, but I do rinse my mouth out after every meal. Uh, and I think that helps bring gets rid of all the uh, what I call it bacteria. Or leftover food that wasn't digested, but I think it's important. And how's your track record? How's your dental track record? When you go to the dentist, do uh, you, you you get compliments from the dentist and the dental hygienist and so forth? Well, uh, I'm almost eighty. I haven't had a cavity in uh, thirty years. So oh, okay. You take it from there. That's uh, pretty good. And you yeah. still have all your teeth. We just lost one the other day. Uh, I don't know what from just uh, gets uh, you know after a while I guess they get soft, uh, but I got you know I still have uh, I think we're supposed to have about thirty sixteenth I think I got thirty three. All right, hey, so, not bad, so not bad, thirty three. Okay, uh, Hank, safe. thank you very much. Appreciate it. You know it's funny. Um, 
my most frequent occurring nightmare is losing teeth. And there's all sorts of theories as to what this is. And you look this up online, there's there's 900 different theories. Oh, it means this. It means that. It means that. So I've gone, I've given up trying to interpret what that dream means. But I, I whenever, I, this is my most frequent nightmare. Is, Mine um, too. Do you have the same thing? Yeah. And so um, whenever you wake up, and sometimes it's my tongue. Right. Sometimes my tongue is turns to almost it turns to wood kind of. And I will reach to scratch my tongue and it, and it, it, it's like sawdust almost. It, it, it comes off. Now, maybe part of that is because I speak on the radio in my mouth and my 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 tongue and my teeth are all integral to what I do. But I hear stories like like what Hank just said. About losing a teeth, a tooth on without any knowledge or without any forethought. It just gets soft and it comes out. That will give me nightmares for a month. I'm actually so regretful that I asked the question because, I mean, I I give him credit for answering honestly, but now to think that you can just lose a tooth, I mean, that's bad news. I don't like that. Well, I mean, look, I guess there are worse things. You could be like Ed Wood. Ed Wood lost his teeth during the war, and uh, he had uh, he had uh, dentures even as a young man. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, I brush after breakfast, but the most important time, from what I've been reading, is to brush before you go to sleep to get rid of the bacteria in your mouth because somehow through the eight hours of sleeping, it has time to infiltrate your gums and cause dementia. That's why I started doing it years ago. And because I brush right before I go to sleep, I eat my breakfast and then brush after that. I'm not worried about the bacteria because I got rid of it before I went to sleep. Okay. Well, so you brush after breakfast, but the important thing in your book is to uh, brush before you go to bed. What's your flossing situation, Rick? I don't floss that often. Got, well, what's got, not that I, often? I, 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 once a day, once a week, once a month? Well, once a week. Once a week. I know, I, I know you're into it and all that, but I, first of all, I have very loose teeth, so my, my uh, I mean, uh, separated teeth, so my brush gets between them pretty good. I hear that, right? And, uh, and Rick, your point about bacteria, mouth bacteria and dementia is right on the money, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons I floss so often, because they say that the less, the more that you floss, the better shot that you have at avoiding dementia for the same reason. And I get the discomfort of floss. I was, I, I was flossing like crazy yesterday, and my gum started bleeding, and I was spitting blood into the sink. And now this is exactly what I want to be doing right before I'm leaving to go to work, is tasting blood in my own mouth and, and, and having Rachel yell at me for getting blood stains on the teeth. But thank you for the call there, Rick. I um, still think it's just so important. I am a floss evangelist. Absolutely. Eddie in Babylonia. Hello, Eddie. <laughs> Babylonia. Actually, it's North Babylonia. But, okay, here, here it is, the movie Running Man with Dusty Hoffman. Did you see it? You have to know this because, Frank, I, I, you just, you're a sponge. You know everything. Uh, so in the but movie isn't Running Run- Man. Running Man is with Arnold Schwarzenegger, isn't it? Uh, well, um, uh, you know, Rain Man, you know, Dustin Hoffman, uh, oh, the actor. Yeah, yeah, Rain Man, I know. But There's the running. Also, 
running man is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I don't know. I don't know. Listen to me now. I'm hearing it later. But I think Running Man was an older movie. With, uh, it's a Marathon uh, uh, Man. Doodle, oh, with, Marathon Man. Marathon Man with, with Dustin Hoffman. Okay, yeah. Marathon oh, Man I have not seen. Okay. But The Running Man, no. because it has one of my heroes, Jesse Ventura, in it. I have seen that. I've also yeah, seen Rain yeah. Man. But I haven't seen uh, every movie with man in the title. So, no, I never saw a Marathon Man. Okay, so you're right. Marathon Man. Uh it, it's it's incredible because he goes to this dentist. Well, he straps him in a chair, he's torturing him, and he's drilling his tooth, and he's he's saying, "Is it safe?" Because he thinks he knows something about his past. This guy was dentist was like Mengele, and um, well, then we'll get back to flossing. I learned in medicine that flossing is it, it's more important because you're getting the bacteria between the teeth out and the plaque out. Uh, which which are the most dangerous thing? You know, he said uh, it'll increase your lifespan by ten years if you force. Yes, but, uh, well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You you watch Marathon Man, you'll you'll <laughs> you'll get a kick out of it uh, um, because uh, there's one heck of a movie just to sit there. It's like my dad was a Marine and Army aircraft ex sergeant, and we he he was said he didn't care about pain. We go to the dentist, Frank. And the dentist says, okay, I'm going to give you Novocaine. My father goes, I don't need Novocaine. I'm sitting there as a kid, and the sweat, the sweat's dripping off my temples. And I'm seeing my father get his tooth drilled. And the dentist oh. is looking at him going, really? I, I just don't understand. But, you know, what he went through, like what our dads went through in their lives, I look at myself and I go, oh, it's okay. I broke my toe the other day. I'm walking around. And, uh, <laughs> pain, pain is relative. It's a relative thing. Yeah, no, that that's for sure. Uh, thank you, Eddie. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. With no teeth, uh, there's no need to brush. That is one advantage. But I made that mistake. Uh, I have receding gums. It runs in the family. So, you know, the gums start shrinking and the teeth start popping I have that also. Uh, I have that also. They always tell me it's from from, uh, aggressive brushing. Uh, me, it's more aggressive smoking. I used to be a heavy smoker back in the day, you know, uh, until cigarettes became too expensive. But but the uh, the thing is, you know, for those of your listeners who think about, well, what if I have no teeth? That's probably the biggest mistake I ever made. Uh, it hasn't affected my voice. It hasn't affected uh, anything else I do. I have dentures. But let me tell you, uh, not having them, peanuts is the first thing you miss. You can't eat peanuts anymore. So you can't you, eat anything hard. Mike, you can't you have, chew on anything. You have no natural teeth? I had them all pulled. Uh, Dr. Bob's in Buffalo. It's a small little dentist up there. And I go, hey, yank them all, you know, one winter. And uh, I just got so frustrated because they were getting loose, you know, because of the receding gums. And they said, you're, going, you're all going to lose them anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. And uh, I said, well, then yank them, you know, because I'm dealing with glaucoma and other oh, issues. Boy. I said, wait, I don't need more problems with teeth, you know. So, yeah, get rid of them, you know. Big mistake. So any of your listeners, take care of your teeth, whether you brush before and after or you brush before or after. Uh, just brush them. Take care of them. Having no teeth is no fun. Mike, I, I feel I feel bad for you. First of all, I'm I'm gratified that you still sound so good because if I ever lose my teeth, I hope I sound as good as you. But I feel bad for you. You know what? I'm going to put you on hold. I want to give Mike a, a a hat or a mug or something because you know for for sympathy purposes, we're going to do a um, a queen for a day uh, on an upcoming show. And if I got to pick, because obviously you know this is 
in my nightmares. So this is big. If I got to pick who would win Queen for a day, it would always be the person with no teeth. I mean, I, I, almost, I don't want to say this because I don't want this to happen to me, but I would almost rather lose all of my toes than lose my teeth. I'm not, I'm not joking about that. And, I, again, I hope neither happens. But uh, I find that very frightening, very frightening. Steve is in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. All right, Steve. Uh, one thing you left out that everybody should be doing is tongue scraping. I have like it looks like a Gillette old Gillette razor, and you scrape your tongue. You would be amazed the amount of debris that comes off your tongue. And I do that before I go to sleep, when I floss, and when I brush, and I use the rinse. And if you can get rid of the bacteria in your mouth when you get into the bed, you don't wake up with the warning breath because there's nothing for the bacteria to eat. So you scrape you scrape your tongue before you go to bed. Do you also do it in the morning? Anytime I have anything built up on my tongue. And, and besides that, if you want to go have a nice meal, you want to pull all of that crap out from in between the, the, the rug and your tongue. Your tongue is full of these buds, these little fingers, and this debris gets in between them. And again, like you were saying all morning about the, the brushing, if your mouth is clean, the bacteria have nothing to eat. Yeah. So you got to yeah, no, that's that's good advice, Steve. That is not something that I do often enough. I have to say, thank you. You know, one of the things I'm, I will have a cigar occasionally, and when I have a cigar, you know, m- my wife will uh, complain about my breath, right? So if we're gonna kiss or something along those lines, I am fastidious in terms of eliminating the tobacco odor or the tobacco taste, right? So I'll n- brush. I'll rinse and I'll brush my tongue. I don't have one of those tongue scrapers like that guy has, but now I kind of think maybe I should have one. I'm starting to regret bringing up this subject. Maybe that's one more reason not to read the New York Times. Am I right? Hey, uh, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade, but first we're going to try and give away $1,000. Those those of you that are on hold, uh, we'll try and get to you. And uh, for anybody else, we are going to try and give you um, if you want to be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, that's uh, 800-848-9222, uh, we'll give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, you will win $1,000 straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. talk with Brian Kilmeade in just a minute. I can't wait to get his take on uh, this week's elections. 
Uh, but first, we're going to see if we can't give away $1,000. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Chris is in New Jersey. Yeah, good morning there, Chris. Good morning, Frank. Chris, are you familiar with this game? Yes, I am, sir. Excellent. Okay, uh, so let's get started. If you're ready, you feeling smart today? Yeah, you know, I just got up a little while ago. I'm kind of smart, though. We'll see. Good. Okay. I feel good about your chances then. All right. What is two added to four? Six. What is an ingredient used to make pizza? Cheese. Does a lunar eclipse deal with the sun or the moon? The moon. Who won the election for New York governor on Tuesday? Oh. What former Jeopardy champion now hosts that game show? What is Kramer's first name on Seinfeld? Ah, we lost. Uh, we lost, Chris. Um, so, um, yeah, if uh, I don't know what to do there. He had a weird phone connection. I guess that we got to blame over on that one. It's over, right? It's over. I don't know if he hung up or if we got disconnected, but he, he was crackling a little bit. But uh, we got that's a Kenneth miss, I think. Oh, he was good when I was talking to him. Mm, yeah, I bet he was. Everybody's good until, uh, you until, know, until they get on the air. Then they develop accents, and all of a sudden their radios turn on, and uh, they have no idea what's going on. They think my name's John, and they're off topic. Oh, but they're great. He didn't have teeth. What they're can great. I say? They're great until... Uh, until until they get out of the year. This is uh, the other side of midnight. Do we have the great Brian Kilmeade? All right, uh, Brian, um, New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox and Friends. Uh, give me your take on yesterday's uh, elections. Were you surprised? Were you not surprised? Give me your take, Brian. Did you get Kenneth? All right. Well, we're, we're going to try and reconnect with uh, with Brian. In the meantime, uh, let me say hello to Fred in Yonkers. Hello, Fred. Hey, good morning, Frank. A couple of years ago, I went to the oral surgeon, and he's like, hey, Fred, you using a water pick? I said, no, not in my life. He's like, go get yourself a water pick. It's mind-blowing. It's the best thing you could ever use. See the way you said that, I was waiting for you to deliver a punchline or something. But you're you're sincere. No, no punchline. The other funny thing is, you know, I'm dyslexic, and when I said twenty three teeth, you never know; it could have been thirty two. <laughs> uh, thank you, Fred. Thank you. Um, uh, we're gonna try and uh, connect again with Brian Kilmeade. Brian, do we got you? You got me. All right, Brian. Give me your take on uh, Tuesday's elections. Well, I just don't know. I mean. Uh, yeah, is it a wave? No. Okay, got it. Uh, but, and Democrats are happy not to have a wave, I understand it. But if you lose the House and Senate, what are you going to think then? Uh, because I don't really know if there's a Joe Manchin on the right that's going to uh, put their brakes on any Republican agenda, especially if Murkowski's out in Alaska. He leaves you Collins. And I don't really see Republicans coming up with a, a huge conservative agenda uh, in Congress, that that usually where they get into disputes is usually coming from the White House. So 
I, I just I walk away from this. Pennsylvania, excuse me, uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada have to straighten their act out. This is intolerable. Florida used to be the one problem. Now they're totally comfortable in Arizona. So wait, we got six hundred fifty thousand ballots to count. Meanwhile, they have—I think they're a state of four million. Florida counts their seven million night of the election. I mean, come on! What are you doing as governor and secretary of state? You have people there that just work on elections. How could this be acceptable? Having said that, uh, it looks like Republicans are picking up the Senate seat for now. But there's a lot of dumps going on in Nevada, and then if you see. Uh, if you see a huge move in Arizona with Masters because Carrie Lake is within striking distance with a lot of Republican votes yet to be counted, uh, assume Republican votes yet to be counted. If Masters has managed to uh, catch Kelly, it's over. You don't have to worry about the you don't have to worry about the Herschel Walker runoff. But right now it looks like we're going to have to wait to December 6th. So I ask you, Frank, if you lose the House and Senate, why are you celebrating? But I would say it looks like abortion was bigger than people thought. The economy is number one. But if drilling down to the numbers, the experts, nonpartisan experts say a lot of people don't blame Joe Biden for what's going wrong with the economy. Well, and it, it is interesting in terms of the political aspect of what happened on Tuesday. Uh, I agree with you, right? I mean, the Republicans won the House. That certainly is cause for celebration on their part. The front page of the New York Post today is really interesting. They have sort of a cartoon of Donald Trump. It says, Trumpy Dumpty. Don, who couldn't build a wall, had a great fall. Can all the GOP's men put the party back together again? And it's funny. We did four hours of election analysis yesterday, Democrats, Republicans, uh, independents. And a lot of folks were saying that they blame Trump for being something of a distraction in this election. And they're actually blaming him for the Republicans not winning as many seats as they anticipated. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Well, number one, people that support him don't mind. It's the people that don't or are indifferent. That's the issue. So for people who say, I like Donald Trump, and I'm, I'm, I like Donald Trump too. But if you just ask yourself, what does it take to win? That's, that's where it comes in. And let me ask you, who does he bring in besides people that might have been there already that are voting for Republicans? So he put his hand on the sale with uh, Mastriano, and it was a joke. Uh, the guy's extremely intelligent. No doubt about it. But he didn't campaign. And he raised $300,000. And the president, former president, doesn't give up money. So a lot of people gave to Donald Trump, got him $160 million. And he didn't spend much on the candidates that he put forward, which I think is wrong. I mean, if people say, I only want to give to Donald Trump, should he run again? I don't think that's why people give $12 and $10. I don't, that, that's not why people rally around you for two years. Uh, because of election fraud and you don't use it to investigate, this is my criticism of him. So Mastriano, the minute he's not campaigning, he's lazy. He didn't want to engage with donors, let alone voters. So he, evidently it's hard for the American people to split a ticket. So uh, for some reason, Dr. Oz was not accepted by the people of Pennsylvania because they say he didn't have enough houses there. <laughs> so having said that, you're asking people to leave Shapiro, who wins by 20, and go over to Oz. Evidently, when you talk to these behavioral experts, they don't like splitting tickets to a great degree. So Oz has some headwinds. And believe it or not, people felt bad for Fetterman. I feel bad for America. I mean, the guy is way to the left. He can barely talk. He can barely walk. He, he's lived a life of lazy. 
and now he represents Pennsylvania. So that's a disaster. And you could go back to Trump for going with Mastriano on that. And then Bolduck is not the president's responsibility. He endorsed him in the last week. Polls were wrong. He, he lost by a great amount. And the other big story, J.D. Vance won easily, did not mention Donald Trump in his acceptance speech. I found that certainly noteworthy. And Herschel Walker, I think, was running anyway. But for the most part, when the president came into Pennsylvania as a somewhat of a polarizing figure, and if he plays a role in Arizona, if he does that, that's a polarizing figure. He really does not. He should not play a role in Georgia because clearly Kemp is more popular than him. He actually gained steam after Trump challenged him. So I think right now the hottest Republican is DeSantis. The question is, does he get in? If it wasn't for Trump, he would be in. The um, you know everything you said about the quality of the candidates that lost it certainly rings true. But those candidates were all boosted by Democrats as well, who thought they would have a better shot in the general election running against the so-called election deniers than a mainstream Republican candidate. So, in some respects, is is it unfair to blame Trump when the Democrats spend in some cases millions boosting those weak candidates? Yeah, I mean, $53 million. $53 million they spent uh, pushing with who they thought were weak candidates to extreme. But they didn't touch Joe. Joe O'Day won on his own and won without Trump and won despite money against him, but fell miserably in the general. They told us it was too close to call. You have Blake Masters. They say Blake Masters' presence, who I think is extremely talented. But if it wasn't for Trump going after Governor Ducey, he would have been the senator. And there was a, there's a theory out there. Sununu was going to run for Senate if Trump went, Trump and he weren't sparring. He thought, why do I need this? So he ends up, instead of having a layup and trouncing in New Hampshire, they end up going with, uh, I like General Bolduc, but evidently he had no support and Trump didn't give many and until the last week. So you had some shaky candidates emerge. Would they have emerged without Trump's support? I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, having said that, I never had a problem with Dr. Oz. I don't have a problem with Herschel Walker, except for he should have just come clean and said, listen, when I was younger, I supported two abortions on my girlfriends, and I feel terrible. I think about it every day, and that's why I feel X, Y, and Z, or you stay out of the issue entirely. So that could have been the 1% and 2% that split the ticket. So you can look at these strategies, uh, but the country is just, uh, bottom line is the country is extremely divided. And I just can't believe, overall, when I take a step back, that President Biden could perform like this in front of the microphone and through legislation and continue to say ridiculous things like it looks like he's going to use the levers of power to make sure Donald Trump does not run. Did you hear that yesterday? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable what he just said, and he's not going to change anything. It's unbelievable the American people wouldn't break and want a higher standard because this has been a poor functioning administration at home and abroad. And I just thought the American people would see Afghanistan and say that that is too embarrassing. These veterans would. This is too embarrassing for me. Brian, I'm going to let you run. I know you got a, a busy day ahead of you. People want to see you on your forthcoming trip to New Jersey. They can get tickets at BrianKillMe.com. It's always a treat to talk with you, my friend. Yeah, go get them. December 2nd. I'll see you out there, Frank. I'll be there. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, any portion of my conversation with Brian Kilmeade. You know, the, the thing that the comment that Brian made about Afghanistan I thought was interesting. I vote on foreign policy. I take foreign policy very seriously, especially in a uh, presidential race. And people ask me, oh, would you vote for DeSantis? Would you vote for DeSantis? 
The answer is I have no idea because I have no idea where DeSantis is on any foreign policy question. So it's impossible for me to make a judgment. But what the polling shows, the exit polling and so forth, is that most people don't vote on foreign policy. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, as much of a disaster as Afghanistan was, that they didn't hold that against the, the Democrats. All right, 800-848-9222. You know, the other thing I did want to mention before we ran out of time, and this is maybe something that you could help me with, is so we have Carmine's birthday coming up the Saturday after Thanksgiving. He's going to be one. And we're having just family, really, at this party. And um, that means it's mostly adults. So... Rachel asked me to come up with a bunch of activities that adults could do because there's only a couple of kids and the kids that are there are much older than one, right? So it's not as if you you need to get a face painter or somebody to entertain seven or eight-year-olds. You know, most of the people attending, you'd look at it probably 30 or 40 people. They're mostly adults. They're my, my siblings. Uh, siblings-in-law, cousins, uh, parents, aunts, and so forth. And what could you do in what it's going to be cold, which late November probably will be, that will entertain 30 or 40 adults? So, so far, the only activity that we've come up with is sort of a Carmine trivia game where we ask people, I I know we have family members that listen to the show, so I'm not going to give out any answers, any questions. We have, we ask people Carmine-related trivia questions, and we have prizes to give to people that, that win. But Rachel did say that uh, she w- would welcome the feedback of listeners to this program of different uh, different activities that can be done for adults. So if you have a suggestion, you can go ahead and email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com, or you can give me a call. At 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. John is in Connecticut. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm making a living. I hear you. You know, I haven't had cheese in quite a while, and uh, it's a real chore to try and eat some uh, things, but I literally have calluses on my gums, and, uh, you know, you got to be real careful. You choke easy. But I hear people talking about floss, and you know, I had a lot of issues with the dental. Uh, maybe it was alcohol-type things, but uh, the, the tooth pain that I had in my 30s, uh, you know, because I lost all my teeth slowly, naturally, you know, never went to the dentist. I probably was traumatized as a kid. I remember my dad putting me on the handlebars of a bicycle when I was about six, and he drove us down to the dentist. And he got all his teeth pulled. And I don't think I, I went to the dentist for 30 or 40 years, uh, Frank. Well, so what, and, uh, you know, what was it that caused you to lose your teeth? Well, you know, again, uh, you know, it's probably a genetic, you know. You know, he had poor teeth, too. But uh, probably, you know, uh, between alcohol and and not taking care of them, you know, but slowly but surely they all literally just rotted out of my head. And, uh, you know, people say, why don't you get dentures? I I don't know. You know what I mean? I I just, 
I went to the dentist once, and he's like, we're going to pull four teeth. And I'm like, what? I have four teeth. I'm not, I'm not willing to give them up, but surely they all go. You oh. know what I mean? You, you know, but uh, eating steak and even spaghetti, if, if you don't watch. But, uh, Frank, the funniest thing was when I, I used to have a, a, a front cap, and when I lost it, I was eating a chicken roll in my friend's pizzeria, and I was devastated. I did with the face of dent and the whole bit. But to start talking, to say uh, ass and stuff without the teeth, oh, my God, it was a nightmare, Frank. Yeah. But, you know, you know, now I guess I, I'm just I'm just like I, I should have something done. I wish I, I, I had the, the uh, oomph, but I'm devastated. I resulted in. But more importantly, Frank, than my teeth, blah, 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 you know, we need to take to the streets like the people of Iran and demand that our country is being taken care of. I mean, we don't have any diesel fuel, uh, uh, open borders. Uh, it doesn't look like either side is doing a damn thing for anybody. When are the people going to say enough is enough and hold these people accountable? Uh, John, well said. I, and thank you for the call. Good luck with everything. I'm sorry that you uh, that you have had oh, no. No, team. no, I'm okay, Frank. Good, I, good. You, know, you sound good. You sound good. You sound like not only not only do you sound like you enunciate well, but you sound like you have a great attitude. So I appreciate that. Uh, but I think one of the points that John makes, and oh, I just I hear these stories of people that have no teeth. My my heart really goes out to them. I feel terrible. Um, but uh, the broader point that John makes when he says we're not getting anything from either side is I think we need wholesale reform of the political process in general. I mean, I think it's the – you have half the country that thinks Joe Biden is the problem. You have half the country that thinks Donald Trump is the problem. The problem is not Joe Biden or Donald Trump. The problem is a system and a process that would create a Joe Biden or a Donald Trump. We need wholesale reform of our political structure, as far as I'm concerned. Ta, uh, Tony is in Florida. Uh, hello there, Tony. Tony. Yeah, can you hear me? I hear you, yes. Okay. Um, you know, last time I talked to you, we were being hit by a hurricane, and darn if we're not getting hit by another one. <laughs> yeah, Tropical Storm Nicole, right? Or now Hurricane Nicole. Yeah. This first, the wind has been blowing really hard, and I have a lot of trees around my house, and I'm terrified one's going to land on me. Uh, but it's been like this all day, rain and wind, and it's been pretty bad. Last time, the, the power went off for three days. Well, I mean, um, isn't that doesn't that come with the with the territory and living in Florida? Aren't you likely to experience all sorts of inclement weather like this? Yeah, it, it, in the summertime, it, it storms every single day. No, I know. That's one of the one of the reasons I have no desire to live in Florida. Yeah, it, uh, you get used to it, though, because when it storms and when it lasts a half an hour, then you're good the rest of the day. It's not like up north where when it rains, it can rain for days at a time. And if it's raining on one end of your street, it's raining on the other end. In Florida, you could be raining on one end of your street. The other end is dry. Mm-hmm. Get used to it. But what I wanted to say is I used to have that same dream about my teeth falling out. 
And uh, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. But uh, Well, what happened? How did you get rid of the dream? Well, I had my teeth pulled. Oh, my goodness. Um, not because of the dreams, though. What? Because I had uh, I had to take medication. I have a disease called stiff person syndrome, and it causes seizures. Are you still there? Yes, I'm. I'm listening. I'm riveted. Okay, because my power just went out, and then went back on again. Well, you really can't catch a break. Seizures, no teeth, and uh, and no power. My goodness, better off living back in New York, <laughs> Tony. Yeah, but uh, anyway, it, the seizures caused me to bite my tongue at night when I was sleeping, and I'd wake up with blood gushing out of my mouth. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah, so, uh, and, and my, uh, I would, uh, when I had seizures, I'd also break my teeth. And uh, so when it was time for me to get my teeth pulled, because I had uh, problems with cavities from dry mouth, um, I'm happier. I don't have to worry about the pulling out anymore. Well, that's, I don't the, have yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, Tony, I have to run, but good luck with everything. You know, thank you. When I saw this article asking the question, should you brush your teeth before breakfast or after breakfast? I figured I'd mention this, explain the dentist reasons why, and then hear stories about why people brush before or after. I had no idea this was going to become a uh, a uh, sounding board for dental horror stories and tooth horror stories. I would tell you, this was the last thing I would have mentioned on a day that I was going to the dentist. But you know what? It makes me not feel bad that I'm getting up early to go to the dentist because uh, I think it, it highlights the importance of proper dental hygiene. And uh, see, whenever I go, the, the dental hygienist that we have, Angela, great lady, big fan of uh, of mine. I don't know that she listens to this incarnation of me on the radio, but she listens to she's listened to me on the radio for a number of years. And she always compliments me on my teeth. She says, you have such beautiful teeth, such beautiful gums. I could tell the great job that you're that you're doing on flossing. I can't tell if she's saying that because she's. She likes me personally or because it's true. And so I have to um, I have to always take some Frank fan bias into account when she's giving me that review. All right. Um, we are going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. You could say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Somewhere out there on the other side of me now. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight by uh, Stevie G and the Dental Hygienists, available for 99 cents on iTunes. A phenomenal, phenomenal song, if ever there was one. All right. Uh, we will end this show as we end each and every program. By the way, remember, keep in mind, we got uh, tomorrow, Ask Frank Anything. I need you to be on your A-game. We have prizes restored for tomorrow's program. Be on your A-game. We need good questions because I have a rough day ahead of me today. And so I'm going to be a zombie by tomorrow. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. David! A 10-year-old boy was suspended from school and will likely face battery charges for hugging a school counselor in Florida. Seems like overkill. Andy! Being a former GOP candidate for city council and how profound you're talking about teeth, we have all lost our teeth politically. And as far as congressionally, we need to pull every single one of those teeth out of office. Term limits. Mike! Tomorrow again, Frank, uh, real quick, a shout-out to Giuseppe from Aconcoma for giving me a shout-out and a good uh, caller and a good friend. You know what? If I was in Long Island, uh, Frank, I'd rendezvous with you guys at uh, Jake's. I'm in Myrtle Beach, South Kakalaki. Ernie. Hey, Frank, do whatever the dentist tells you. Next week I'll tell you a horror story. No need. No need. Gary. Uh, The new House uh, Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, says no more blank checks to uh, Ukraine, World War III. There are U.S. Special Forces now on the ground inside Ukraine. No to World War III. Joan. Flossing is very, very important to preserve your gums, along with brushing, of course. Roger. I know you're a floss angelist. And dental-oriented, but toothpicks to hold your eyelids open be very, very uncomfortable. I recommend rather Q-tips. Oh, that's a good thought. Uh, Charlie. Okay, Frank. Uh, the two main battles uh, for humans now are the battle for faith, Mother Nature, number one, divinity, God, the Father, number two, divinity, and the battle against nature's creatures, which are the souls and of And finally, uh, George. Frank, I'm heading to the hospital to have my toes amputated on my left foot, and you blew my mind this morning with that comment. Oh, my. Uh, Write to me, George. Good luck. Frank Morano, good day. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.